Chapter 11 I stood on the familiar pier in Glückstadt watching ships in the Elbe River. High tide from the North Sea had filled the estuary to capacity, enriching the air with the salty scent of the ocean. The river was more than two miles wide at this point, the lonely call of gulls and the sound of water lapping at the pilings inspired me. On a brisk and sunny day, these sounds would carry my thoughts away to Africa. As a boy, I loved to get away from school, away from my teasing brothers, away from the chores and every mundane thing, and come to the waterfront to dream. Every hour of the day, huge sea-going freighters would ply silently up and down the channel. All that could be heard was a deep vibration from the engine rooms as diesel furnaces drove propellers powerfully through the water. As the ships left Hamburg again and headed downriver to the ocean, I longed to be aboard, sailing away to the African continent. Thinking of the years ahead, waiting to fulfill my calling, left an ache in my chest. I felt as if I never could get there, no matter how I longed to go. On this particular day, something unusual had taken place. A large ship had tied up at the Glückstadt Pier. It was the only one I had ever recalled seeing at our little port. Perhaps it had been a temporary mooring awaiting an open berth in Hamburg. For whatever the reason, it sat now blocking my upriver view, its large side towering over the docks. I was reminded of the day in Danzig, now Gdansk, when Mother had led us across the crowded dock on our desperate voyage to Copenhagen. It seemed long ago, but I glanced nervously at a low-flying seagull, recalling the strafing we had received from the Russian fighter planes. God had marvelously delivered us from their blazing cannons. He had also preserved the ship after it had struck a submerged mine. Mother had prayed and the ship had righted itself. The captain had been quoted later as saying, I left Danzig, an unbeliever. I arrived in Copenhagen, a believer. I smiled to recall that the God I served was Lord of the wind and the sea. I approached the great ship tied so close to the dock. Huge hemp ropes descended from the bow and stern, anchoring the vessel weighing thousands of tons close enough to the dock to touch. I could not resist. A boy of twelve, I reached out from the dock and placed my hand against the great bulk. Even though the air was brisk, the metal was warm from the rays of the sun. As boys are prone to do, I placed both hands on the steel and pushed against it with all my might. To my utter astonishment, the ship moved a few inches away from the pier. My eyes lit up with delight and Revelation. I could hardly believe that I could move that mountain of steel. 
Of course, I knew that on land it would be impossible for me and a thousand others to move it a fraction of an inch. But on the water it had been placed within the realm of the possible, even for a pre-teen boy. What a wonder! And I felt God speak in my heart. He told me that when he asked me to do the impossible, I should obey and not question how to see it done. His ways are limitless. As time passed, I fell into a degree of anxiety in my Pentecostal beliefs. I was not aware of it as such. It is something I can see looking back from the perspective of years and experience. This anxiety arose from hearing repeated teaching at church about the difference between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and other subsequent fillings with the Spirit. This teaching was an attempt to deal with the way such a powerful encounter with the Lord could fade and perhaps be renewed again. We grew anxious to keep our Holy Spirit baptism topped up, as we called it. Ironically, this teaching tended to downplay the element of faith. Rather than trust in the gift that had been given, the insecure believer would storm heaven to obtain a refilling of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, this was our heritage, a great deal of responsibility for seeing the power of God at work in our lives rested squarely on our own shoulders. Thus, a degree of anxiety was present in our worship. Unscriptural ideas crept into our language, into our prayers, and into our singing. Oh, for a new anointing! But I thought the gifts and calling of God were without repentance. Give us a new Pentecost. I did not find it in Scripture that the first century church ever returned to the upper room once they had received the initial experience. Lord, be with us. He had said that he would never leave us nor forsake us. Fill my cup, Lord. How could a mere cup contain the rivers of living water he promised to pour through us? As I grew up with these contradictions, I began to know that errors were present in our fellowship. Still, none of these errors seemed fatal to me. Rather than turn my back on the Pentecostal movement, I sought God to clarify these issues for me. Our Pentecostal prayer meetings sometimes became times of deep introspection. The influence of the holiness movement was seen here. There was much preaching about keeping short accounts with God. That meant that we must confess any and every sin to God in prayer, not to mention our sinful thoughts, so that all of it was under the blood and not hindering our relationship to God. Going back to Azusa Street, I have read that there was teaching like this at the very beginning. Some had held that total sanctification enabled and preceded the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It became something someone had to earn or deserve through holy living. 
This part of the Pentecostal tradition explains why some seekers tarried for so long, as in the case of my mother. She felt great pressure about having not spoken in tongues as the wife of a Pentecostal preacher. The longer she tarried, the more it seemed to indicate that she had some unconfessed sin in her life that was holding her back. This kind of peer pressure actually kept her from receiving the gift until she was at home alone in her bed. In this, I can see that she too was a circus elephant with a thread around her ankle that felt like a chain. Another emphasis at Azusa Street can be found printed repeatedly in the Apostolic Faith, the official publication of the revival. This emphasis was on power more than purity. The leader of the Azusa revival, William J. Seymour, had emphasized that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was for the empowerment of the Great Commission in the last days before the coming of the Lord. This emphasis comes from Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where Jesus told his disciples to tarry in Jerusalem until they received power, not holiness. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. This missionary and evangelistic emphasis of Pentecost, of course, has had the greatest effect worldwide. It has permeated the charismatic movement that followed the Pentecostal revival. The result is the greatest harvest of souls in the history of mankind. Need I mention that this is the emphasis that I also embraced, even as a boy. I am so blessed and thankful that it came from Azusa Street. It passed through Louis Graf to August Bonke and to his son Hermann. Praise God, it stuck to me. But in Glückstadt and Krempe, all of these elements were so entangled in our weekly worship that it was impossible to separate one from the other. We were caught up in it. The good and the bad the truth and the error, the clear and the contradictory, all in one big bundle. None of us in those days had the perspective to step back and separate the issues so that they could be better understood. As the years have gone by, I have interacted with other Christian denominations and traditions. I see that they also have dealt with this problem, Our dilemma was not a particular Pentecostal dilemma. It was, in fact, a human dilemma. The Christian faith has been handed forward in imperfect earthen vessel through every movement of history, through every denomination, every organization and revival from the first century onward. In fact, I now see that this is part of God's design. It is part of the mystery of the church and part of the mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Jesus said, He that receives you receives me, and he that receives me receives him 
that sent me. Receive or reject. The one who receives the imperfect Christian receives Christ. The one who rejects the imperfect Christian rejects Christ. And the one who rejects Christ rejects God the Father too. This important relationship between God and His Son and His children was not stated with qualifications. How an individual responds to this relationship leads to very different ends. It can lead to heaven or hell. To rebel and chafe against the imperfections of the church and of God's people is to fail to see the imperfections in your own mirror. The rebel suffers great loss over time. The unrepentant rebel suffers ultimate loss in eternity. In the Gospels, Jesus spoke a parable about the nature of his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. This seems to indicate that God is well aware that his kingdom will make an imperfect appearance in our fallen world. It will be hidden inside a church body or inside a believer's body for a period of time. Hidden means it will not reflect the full glory of his kingdom in its early stages. In time, however, it will go through a transformation till the whole is leavened. It is always a mistake to discard three measures of meal before the leaven has had time to finish its work. More importantly, it is vital to grasp by faith that the leaven of his kingdom is at work even when our eyes cannot see it. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. My father's pension allowed us to abandon his bicycle and ride by train together to and from Krempe. I delighted in this opportunity to be with him for his Sunday assignment. His church had shrunk in attendance as refugee families became settled elsewhere in Germany. By now, it had become possibly the smallest congregation in all of Germany, with perhaps 25 in attendance. I recall one prayer meeting in my father's church in Krempe, where we were tarrying all night. Admittedly, our prayers contained a tone of anxiety, as if we were trying to twist God's arm to show up in response to our tenacity. I think it is so wonderful that God did not require that we always get him right, but rather that our hearts were right with him. That's what counted. The leaven of his kingdom works by grace and mercy. At some point in the prayer meeting, dear sister Elisa Köhler received a vision. She stood and said that she had seen clothes on an ironing board. Some of the people in the room laughed aloud when they heard this homey illustration. She went on to say, that the clothes had come from the laundry. They were clean garments, she said, but full of wrinkles. These wrinkles were being ironed out. 
her vision had been inspired by the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Sensing that all was not right in our little fellowship, her application of this vision was to say that we had been washed in the blood and had been made clean, but we still found ourselves full of wrinkles. In our times of prayer and fellowship together, we were in the process of having the wrinkles ironed out of our Christian lives. Now, I found this priceless, a picture from the Spirit that applied gently to our situation. We were clean, but needed work. Who would have thought of such a thing? I have submitted myself to have more and more wrinkles ironed from my robes from that day until this. But the same illustration drew ridicule from some believers, like my older brothers. To them it was proof that the gifts of the Spirit were not valid. In their view, people simply used so-called visions and words of prophecy, knowledge and wisdom to present their own homespun opinions with God's name attached. God, they said, would not stoop to such an illustration of divine truth. My brothers, and in fact many others in Pentecostalism, reacted so strongly against imperfections in God's three measures of flour that they threw the spiritual baby out with the bathwater. I could not do that. My new birth and spirit baptism were absolutely real to me and beyond compare. I already knew that God had favored me to hear his voice. Reinhardt, the null boy, the zero, had been graced with his calling and a confirming vision of a boy with a loaf of divine bread had been given to seal it. This indicated to me that he hadn't chosen the brightest and best for his service, but he had chosen one who would value the right things. The baby was worth so much more to me than the bathwater that it became my birthright, though my father never gave up his hope of seeing Martin preach the gospel as the bonky firstborn. Martin rejected and came to despise his Pentecostal heritage. His calling skipped over the pecking order and landed on me. This is a recurring theme in Scripture. We see it in the selection of Gideon and his army, and in the selection of Joseph over his brothers, and David over his brothers. Finally, the Apostle Paul distilled the idea in his great passage found in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 29. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. 
But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. Oh, how could it be said better than that? One particular manifestation of his spiritual gift in Krempe took me by surprise. I went to an evening prayer meeting with my father. It was held at a local residence. It was what we called a cottage prayer meeting, held in a home rather than in the meeting hall. All of the members began to share their prayer needs as usual. Some requested prayer for healing from illness and injuries, others for the salvation of unsaved loved ones, and others for God's provision for financial needs. Then we all began to pray at once, some in German, others in tongues, and yes, some with perhaps an element of faithless anxiety. As the evening progressed, the Holy Spirit came upon me in a way like never before or since. At first I wasn't sure it was the Holy Spirit at all. I thought I might be dying. It was like an electrical charge had penetrated my body and surged from my hands up to my shoulders. As I continued to pray, the Lord fastened my eyes on a woman across the room who had requested prayer for an illness. No one was praying with her. I instantly knew that this visitation of the Holy Spirit was not for me, but for her. No one had to tell me that if I laid my hands on her, she would be healed. That is the kind of knowledge one automatically knows under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now, my problem was in the natural. My father would not allow me to lay hands on that woman. He saw me as the son who always had a mind of his own. This kind of action would be presumptuous, one step short of rebellion in his mind. I knew that. If I stepped out of line and did what the Holy Spirit seemed to be telling to me, I run the risk of incurring my father's wrath, which could be greater and of more consequence than my mother's. So a debate raged in my mind, but not for long. I remembered how I had moved the ship in the Glückstadt harbor, on this night the Holy Spirit was giving me orders, and my job was to obey, simply obey, leaving the outcome to God. But I was still afraid of my father. I ducked behind furniture and began to work my way around the room on my hands and knees. With each movement of my arms, the supercharge running through my hands made me buck and tremble like a man with palsy. As I reached the place behind the woman, I rose up and placed both hands on her shoulders. She screamed and was jettisoned from the chair to the floor. Picking over the back of her chair, 
my eyes met the eyes of my father. Reinhard, what did you do to her? Father, the Holy Spirit told me to lay my hands on her. Before he could recover from his surprise, she leaped from the floor. Brother Bonky, Reinhardt laid hands on me, and it was like a bolt of electricity shot through me from top to bottom. I am healed. I am healed. Praise God, I am healed. She leaped and praised God, dancing around the room with joy. I looked now at my father and rose from my knees. I could see that there would be no punishment for what I had done. But he seemed stunned and somewhat undone. Now, that I am older, I think perhaps he wondered why the Holy Spirit would overlook the faithful pastor of the Pentecostal Church in Krempel and move with a dramatic spiritual gift through the least of his children. Indeed, I think the Apostle Paul might have given him the best answer. And things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. The world's rejects are God's elects. During these growing up years, I had a vision of Africa. It happened during another of those prayer meetings. I don't remember if in Krempel or Glückstadt. It bore a peculiar mark of authenticity to prove it was not from my own imagination. In the vision, I saw a map. I recognized it was the continent of Africa. In the vision, the name of the city of Johannesburg was illuminated as if God was indicating that my assignment to Africa would be there. Perhaps this was where I would break the bread of life and see it multiply as seen in the vision by Grandma Bouchos. In my mind, this map vision of Johannesburg puzzled me because earlier I had seen an actual map of Africa and from memory had placed Johannesburg at another location. I kept the vision to myself and puzzled over it as I went home that night. The next day, in school, I went to the library and looked up the Atlas of the World. Finding South Africa, I located the city of Johannesburg. It was not where my memory had recalled it. In fact, it was where the vision had shown it to me. God's spirit is more than accurate. His directions come from the very mind of omniscience, and I should not be surprised to learn that God knows his geography better than I. After all, he was the one who spoke and divided the continents from the seas. So my heart became set not only on Africa, but specifically on Johannesburg, South Africa. My brothers were growing worldlier by the day. As I entered my teens, they were far ahead of me in every way. They had begun to notice girls and were saying things about them out of earshot from mother and father. Things that made me blush, though I confess I did not understand half of it. Seeing my awkwardness, 
they enjoyed ridiculing me, calling me the missionary boy, the holy boy, and naive. I didn't even know what the word naive meant. I guess they were right. But it was more than naivety. I had the spirit of Christ in me that informed me of the way I ought to think about girls and women. They were automatically precious to me because they were precious to God. I took offense at disrespectful language and images. Eve had been created especially for Adam. I had read in Genesis that in the Garden of Eden they had been naked and unashamed. This was God's idea, not some lewd boy's description. I wondered what the full difference was. One day, as I walked along the Glückstadt waterfront past City Hall, I looked up and noticed the flag of our city flying below the West German flag. The symbol for our city was Lady Luck, and she was naked. Why had I never noticed before? As the flag undulated slowly in the breeze, I also noticed that the banner bearing her title had been conveniently painted across her midsection. Still, her breasts were bare and open for all to see. I felt a stirring in myself that made me uncomfortable. I suddenly worried about what my mother had meant when she had spoken of women who would flaunt their bodies and arouse sinful passions in men. Is that what I was feeling? Was it sinful passion? Something had to be done about this right away. I would go to my dad. He was a man of God. Surely he understood these things. God would not create this kind of beauty and this kind of desire and not have a wonderful plan to deal with it. So I took up the conversation with him as we rode the train toward the prayer meeting in Krempe. Father, have you noticed the city flag of Glückstadt? I never let my eyes go there, and neither should you. It's disgusting. This confused me a bit. I wouldn't have called it disgusting. Wrong? Yes, but not disgusting. What is the right way? A man and a woman are naked, Father. Like when they were in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, it says they were naked and unashamed. Reinhardt. We are on our way to church. You should be thinking of the things of God. We are his creatures. I'm thinking that one day I will marry someone, and I know that marriage is not sinful. You and mother are married. You have children. I know that it is not something sinful. I want to know how that works. How do a man and a woman who love God get married and have children and not be sinful? Well, marriage is the only way, otherwise it is something that will send you to hell. So his answer was, marriage, period. This was obviously right, but it seemed like such an incomplete answer to my question. We traveled in silence for a time, then began to talk again. He talked of several seekers in the congregation he thought were close to receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. One of them had stopped smoking. The other had given up a nightcap of peppermint schnapps. 
A woman had stopped braiding her hair in accordance with the instructions in the book of First Timothy. Another brother had confessed that he had slipped and cursed during the week. He felt that if he fasted and prayed, he would be ready at the next invitation to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and on and on. I needed my father to step up to his role. Sexuality was such a big discovery for me, and I was lost in the woods. I didn't want to learn any more details from my brothers, or friends at school, or from the city flag, or from another circus poster with scantily clad trapeze artists flying through the air. But he had changed the subject, and without saying so, had forbidden me to bring it up again. That day, my father stepped down from his high position in my eyes. To find my answers, I would seek my father in heaven for guidance. I would look for clues in the Bible and wherever else I could find them. And I would never do this to my own son when I became a father. In the meantime, nearing the age of 14, I would remain naive for a while longer. My father approached me not long afterwards, saying, Reinhardt, if you want to become a missionary to Africa, you must learn a trade. Our Pentecostal denomination requires it. In poor countries, most of our missionaries have to support themselves with a local profession. The support of church offerings is seldom enough. I have found a carpentry school here in Krempe. Carpentry is a basic trade throughout the world. Wherever you go, you can find work. I want you to attend this apprenticeship and begin the training that will support your calling. I did not feel good about this idea, but I was an obedient son and I went to the school. The master carpenter was a very rough man. He screamed at me for the smallest mistake and I made many so much about carpentry simply escaped my understanding. It was almost as bad as trying to learn English. I was totally intimidated. Week after week I attended the workshop and the master tormented me with his angry outbursts. Finally one day he just chased me off screaming, You will never be a carpenter. Get out! Get out! I remember that it was an eight-kilometer ride to my home on my bicycle. All the way home, I cried, thinking I cannot be a missionary because I'm not suited to be a carpenter. There could be no greater defeat for me. At home, I told my dad what had happened. He felt very sorry for me. He returned to the carpenter school and spoke with the headmaster, he explained to him that I had to find a trade that I could practice as a missionary one day. Please, try Reinhardt one more time. He did. After a few weeks, he came to me again. He was not shouting anymore. In sympathy, he said, Reinhardt, you had better look for another trade to support your African ministry. You will never be a carpenter. A heavy burden lifted from my shoulders. I understood he was right. 
I could now tell my father that I had simply tried the wrong trade. Something else would be the right trade for me. I rode my bicycle home, this time with joy in my heart. I am free. I don't have to be a carpenter, I thought. Father accepted this verdict, realizing that I had been obedient. I had tried and had given it my best. I was even willing to try a second time. Now we could move on. I was now 15, and as most boys my age, I found an internship in Glückstadt. In this case, it was a job that fit my abilities. It was at the local Edeka, wholesale and export, with a goal that I would eventually become a professional merchant. It involved three days of the week in internship and two days in vocational school. At the end of each month, my boss would count into my hand the pay I had earned. I felt so good. I had accomplished something, and I had earned this money. At the end of each week, I took my money home and put it into a jar that I kept in my bedroom. It began to build in volume, ten, twenty, fifty Dutch marks, and more. I watched it grow and began to dream of ways to spend it. The second Sunday in May in 1955, our church prepared to celebrate Mother's Day. We were instructed as sons and daughters to find some way to honor our godly mothers. At home I decided I would give mother a very nice card from the bookstore. I went to remove money from my growing jar of money. Suddenly the vow I had made at the age of nine returned to me. Counting the money I found I had accumulated somewhat more than 100 marks. I knew what I must do. I went to the store and bought a fine card and signed it. Inside, I tucked 100 Deutschmarks in cash. When mother opened it, she could not believe her eyes. Reinhardt, she gasped. Why did you do this? It's so much money. No, mother, it is not so much. Remember when I stole money from your purse to buy chocolate? Her jaws dropped. She replied slowly, Yes. I had a debt to pay. I vowed that one day I will give my mom 100 Deutschmarks. Now I have done it. From the look on her face, I knew that I had completely dumbfounded her. Never in a million years had she expected it, but I was so happy that I had not forgotten. I was even more happy that I had remembered on Mother's Day. How should I properly describe the operation of the gifts of the Spirit during those Pentecostal prayer meetings in Germany? They were fantastic. Indeed, things took place there that I still cannot classify. At times we experienced common visions. One, two, or three people would report seeing the same scenes like on a movie screen. The others would interpret its meaning. This kind of thing does not happen in all times and places, but it happened then and there. One day when I was 16, I attended an all-night prayer meeting in Kempe. 
I was lost in prayer for hours when I received a word from the Lord. This idea entered my consciousness from the realms of above. It sliced through my mind and sent all other thoughts out of my head. You and Manfred Fischer are to go to preach in Tostedt. Now I knew where Tostedt was. It lay fifty miles beyond Hamburg and across the Elbe River. We had enjoyed fellowship with another Pentecostal congregation from there when coming together at special joint meetings, but the idea of Manfred and I preaching there seemed impossible. My own father did not invite me to preach in his church. How could I expect a pastor from a distant town to allow a 16-year-old or even Manfred, who was 17, preach from his pulpit? The idea was preposterous. But as I prayed, a scripture came to mind in connection to the original outpouring of Pentecost. The Apostle Peter had stood in Jerusalem and explained the manifestation of the Spirit to the curious crowd. He had quoted from the prophet Joel. Part of that quotation came back to me now. I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. I knew that the word prophecy was our word for preach. Scripture seemed to back up the idea that under the influence of the Spirit one did not need the maturity of years or the education of a seminary to be enabled to preach. Still, I felt reluctant. How could I presume to do this thing? I felt a tap on my shoulder. Raising my head from prayer, I looked into the eyes of Manfred Fischer. Reinhardt, he said, the Spirit of God has spoken to me. We are to go to Tostate to preach. I felt the hair rise on the back of my neck. More than that, I felt faith leap up in my heart. I was totally energized by the voice of the Spirit speaking to both of us about the same thing. How could we do this? We decided that we would invite others and go as a group of young people from our church to the church in Toste. If the pastor there would have us, we would come and conduct a service for him, sons and daughters prophesying. After putting the idea before my father and receiving his approval to pursue it, we put our heads together and wrote a letter to the pastor in Tostit. His name was Rudolf Winter. We told him how the Spirit had spoken to us during a prayer meeting. We also quoted the scripture from the day of Pentecost where Peter had spoken to the crowd, If you agree that this is something from the Lord, then we would be pleased to respond to your invitation, we wrote. A few days later, an invitation arrived in the mail from Pastor Rudolf Winter. Manfred and I were ecstatic. I showed the invitation to my father, and he gave the approval for these dates. Then we were filled with dread. What would we say? 
I had never preached from a pulpit before. Bolstead, by a group of three other young men who accompanied us, we took the train from Glückstadt to Tostedt. When we arrived, the pastor introduced us to his congregation by saying, The Holy Spirit sent them. I had my guitar, and we led singing and praise, and then began to offer exhortations as the Spirit gave us utterance. One after another, the young people spoke. The crowd received us well. Then I took my Bible to preach. This was not an evangelistic sermon. I was not yet an evangelist, though I had led one man to Christ while preaching on the street. This was something else that I spoke to the believers in such a way that I still do not understand. It was as if the Holy Spirit began to fall on that crowd like a gentle rain. They began weeping all across the room. There was such sweetness in the atmosphere that you could almost smell it like the perfume of lilac blossoms. We worshipped and took a long bath in the refreshing flow of the Holy Spirit. Gifts of the Spirit manifested and the service was out of my hands. When we returned home, Pastor Winter told my father what had happened. He especially noted the response of the congregation when I had spoken. Father listened and took it all in, but we were not asked to repeat our ministry in his pulpit. It would be another three years before he opened his pulpit to me. In the meantime, he continued to say, Martin shall be my successor, though his voice had lost its normal tone of absolute certainty. Martin had begun his higher education in a secular university. Just recently I was preaching in Germany. After the sermon, an old Pentecostal saint approached me. She was still clothed and groomed in the way of the old-time holiness believers. Her hair was long and straight and fixed in a bun. Her clothes were drab, and not a sign of a ring or a jewel could be seen on her anywhere. Not even a brooch. With eyes shining, she took my hand. Do you remember when you were just a boy and you came to Tostate and preached? Yes, of course, I do. I was there. She took my hand in both of hers, and tears welled up in her eyes. It is something I shall never forget. The tremble of her voice and the tone of it suggested to me that the memory had somewhat different meanings for the two of us. For me, Tostate had been a confirmation that I was moving in the right direction as a young man. It showed me that obeying the voice of the Spirit would produce remarkable and unexpected results, and I should continue to walk in faith and obedience. For her, the experience had become nostalgic, something that took her back with longing to a time that was no more. I sensed that she felt something had been lost in Pentecost since then. For me, nothing could be further from the truth. So much had been gained 
tossed it was merely a launching pad, a beginning, not an end in itself. I have not been able to recall the disagreement to this day. It was one of those issues that make no real impact, has no lasting value. Yet, the kind that drives people apart and leaves them raw and angry. It was one of the little foxes that spoiled the vines, Solomon called them. The thing I remembered most was that I was right about the issue, and my father would not accept new information that would help him to see my point of view. That was the general character of this disagreement. We were riding the train together to a prayer meeting in Kempe when it happened. As we discussed it, my father reacted far more forcefully than the issue required. He concluded by berating me severely and summarily imposing his will over mine. I suppose the roots of the conflict were in the impression that I was a boy with a mind of my own and I had the temerity to express myself. That is just a guess at this point in time, and my father is not here to clarify it. At the time, I knew his action was unfair, and it hurt me deeply. I could do nothing but submit to his authority and fall silent. We rode the last mile to Kempe in that stony kind of silence that says more than the argument itself. Out of the smoldering atmosphere of our train ride, we walked into the meeting room. There we put on our smiles, greeted everyone, and turned our minds toward worship. I played my guitar and led singing as usual. Then we received the list of prayer requests from those assembled. Finally, we began to pray. As the saints entered their prayer zone, Sister Elisa Köhler spoke up. I see a vision, she said, her voice rising with a quiver of anguish above the others. I see a shepherd with his sheep on a meadow. But there's something wrong with the shepherd. He has a shepherd's crook upside down in his hand. The crooked end is on the ground instead of upright. The crook, which is meant to protect the sheep, has injured one of the lambs. A deep and thoughtful silence followed. Then I heard my father sob across the room. I looked up and saw that his head was in his hands. From where he sat, he cried out, Forgive me, Reinhard. I'm sorry, son. Please forgive me. I went to him and we embraced. Our tears flowed freely. Everyone saw it. Together in Krempe, by the gifts of the Spirit, God was ironing wrinkles from our robes. Chapter 12 Father invited a Pentecostal elder statesman from England to preach in Kempe. His name was Reverend Morris, and Father greatly respected him. When Morris came, he was 
very impressed with the spiritual fervor he found among our Pentecostal youth in the greater Hamburg area. He proposed to organize a friendship bus tour to England. He would arrange for 50 German Pentecostal youth to travel there. We would visit two churches, Peniel Chapel in North Kensington and People's Church in Liverpool. Both of these churches were vibrant fellowships with strong evangelistic outreaches. Morris wanted us to take our musical instruments and sing and preach in German. None of us spoke English, so he would travel with us and be our interpreter. He was excited to share the spirit-led ministry of German youth with English youth. He felt such a gesture would be good for both parties. Fourteen years after these two nations had stopped bombing each other in the war, the time was right. Father agreed. This opportunity fired my imagination. I had been reading for years about John Wesley's revival and later the Welsh revival. These movements of God had more than filled the churches in England. They had changed the entire culture. As a result, it seemed to me that the British Isles had a better spiritual heritage than our homeland, even though we were the birthplace of Protestantism. Lutheranism seemed dark and oppressive to me. German Pentecostalism seemed to labor under the inferiority complex of the Berlin Declaration. I was eager to visit my brothers and sisters in England. After I spoke at People's Church in Liverpool, the pastor there, Reverend Richard Case, took me aside. I was nervous, hoping I had not said something in German that had hit the wrong key. Using Reverend Morris as an interpreter, he asked me about my plans for the future. I told him that I had been called to Africa. Reinhardt, he said, you should consider enrolling in a Bible college that suits your calling. Not just any Bible college. You need a school with an evangelistic and missionary heart. What Bible college opportunities do you have in Germany? There is a German Pentecostal school, I said. I don't know about that school, but I do know a first-rate missionary school. It is the Bible college in Swansea, Wales. Reverend Morris agreed. I talk to your father when we get back, he said. I think you should consider the school in Wales. My heart nearly skipped a beat. I knew this was the school founded by Rhys Howells. He had been a coal miner in 1909 when the Welsh revival exploded. Totally transformed, he had gone in the fervor of that revival to southern Africa as a missionary. After seeing great results, he returned to start the Bible College of Wales as an act of tremendous faith. There were absolutely no funds. He prayed in every pound and over the decades had sent hundreds of missionaries around the world. His faith was celebrated like that of George Muller, his predecessor in the faith from nearby Bristol. I had read about Müller, too. I had even more in common with this man. He had been a German from Prussia and a vile sinner even as a Lutheran seminarian. 
after he met the Lord, he became famous throughout the world as a man of great faith. He moved permanently to England and learned to speak English. Eventually, he preached in crusades around the world, including a tour from one end of America to the other during the days of the Holiness Revival. Starting in Bristol with only pocket change, he and his wife had prayed in secret and had seen the Lord provide millions of pounds miraculously, providing for the great orphanages they built there that housed and fed more than 2,000. It was a story that had resonated strongly with me because of our common heritage. It had been part of my longing to follow his path. Now it seemed that it might be possible by attending school in Wales, not in Germany. A dozen years after Müller's death, Rhys Howells had emerged from the Welsh revival. The school he built was not primarily about academic achievement. It was a two-year school of practical ministry. It emphasized relationship with God over theology, prayer over good works, and faith above all. Howells had died in 1950, and his son Samuel had taken over. Samuel faithfully followed his father's ways. Everything about the school seemed to shout, My name! I immediately sensed this was God's leading. Upon my return, my parents were not pleased with this news. They wanted me to attend our German Bible school, but I had felt a strong connection to the descriptions of the school in Wales. It was a direction I felt compelled to go in. I immediately filled out an application and sent it. In the meantime, God did not wait for Bible college. My life of ministry began on May 1st, 1959. It was a Friday, and I was in prayer because I had received an invitation to preach for the summer in Berlin. My father had not allowed me to preach in his pulpit, but this invitation came from one of my former Sunday school teachers, Marian Franz. She and her husband, Eduard, had been led by the Spirit to work with East German refugees in Berlin. The Berlin Wall had not yet been constructed, and two million fellow Germans had fled the Soviet lifestyle, seeking a better life in the West. Their conditions were horrible. When Edward and Marion described their work with the Berlin refugee mission, all of the oppression of my years in the Danish prison camp came flooding back to me. These memories were transformed into a godly compassion for these lost refugees. I went before the Lord in prayer, and God spoke clearly to me, calling me then and there to full-time service. I was 19 years of age. To this day, I mark this date as year one in my life of ministry. I immediately began to raise support for the mission which would last for the summer months. But for some reason, my efforts seemed to stumble. The funds necessary for me to make this trip were simply not coming together. I presented myself to various Pentecostal groups in the region, requesting their help. The help I received was meager. It seemed I 
could more readily raise train fare to Pritchin Trust State than to arouse compassion for lost refugees in West Berlin. This reality began to settle upon me in a way that tested my faith. The way I responded to this difficulty would lay down a pattern that I would follow again and again, decades later raising funds to preach the gospel in Africa. The world found it easy to overlook refugees and Africans, dismissing them as inconsequential to the best efforts of world evangelism. When first dealing with this in connection to my summer ministry in Berlin, I was tempted to depend on resources other than those supplied by the Holy Spirit. That temptation nearly proved disastrous. In a neighboring village, a young Swedish pastor had established a Pentecostal work. I will not use his name here for reasons that will become clear. While presenting my mission to his congregation, he took me aside. Reinhardt, he said, you need to learn how to raise funds. You don't really seem to know how it's done. I can teach you. After the service, he took me for a ride in his brand new Volvo 544 sedan. I was more than impressed. Here was a minister of the gospel who lived in true abundance. I was completely intimidated. My father had never been able to own even a primitive car. This was a fiery red speedster with sleek lines and a high-performance engine. It was something completely unheard of in Pentecostal ministry. When we got inside, he switched on the Stromberg Carlson AM radio and dialed in a powerful station from Hamburg. The fine upholstered interior of the car was suddenly filled with the pulsing sound of Elvis Presley singing blue, blue, blue suede shoes. He was all the rage in Germany. Starting the four-cylinder engine, the minister revved it several times before roaring off down the street, shifting the four on the floor, manual transmission, like a road race veteran, he quickly covered the winding back roads to Glückstadt. My body was used to traveling at the speed of a bicycle or of a diesel-powered commuter train. This trip sent me into sensory overload. When we arrived at my house, I was literally trembling. Before dropping me off, he made a stunning proposition. Reinhardt, I'm going to make a fundraising tour through Sweden in a few weeks. I will be raising money to fund a ministry at an orphanage. Why don't you come with me? You can play your guitar and sing, and I will teach you the secrets of fundraising. We will be gone for six weeks. This seemed like a gift from God. I was swept completely off my feet. Thank you so much, I replied. I really need to learn, and I would really like to do this. I will give you a tentative yes, but I need to talk to my father. I will also pray about it. I must hear from God before I do anything like this. Fine, he said. I will need your answer in one week so we can make plans. I will give you my answer. Mother and father were at the window watching as I entered the house. Their jaws dropped in amazement. I told them of the proposition and asked what they thought about it. It seems like a wonderful opportunity, 
mother said, we will all pray with you about it. But I have never seen a preacher driving a car like that, my father said with a disapproving frown. I'm not sure what to think about it. If he is raising money for orphans, how much of it is going to make payments on that automobile? I would not judge him at first sight, I said. I know that he is helping a lot of orphans as well as pastoring a thriving congregation. What about Berlin? Dad asked. I thought God had called you to minister in Berlin to the refugees. He has, and I will. Maybe I will be better equipped to do it after I have learned how to raise funds. I would like to go to Sweden first, then to Berlin. As I prayed that night, I felt no peace. This indicated to my heart that God was saying no. I didn't understand why. In prayer, I continued to argue in favor of the trip. My discouragement with sluggish fundraising was driving the desire of my heart. A few days later, my brother Peter came home from the university. He was determined to become a medical doctor. By this time, all of my older brothers had graduated from high school and were pursuing higher education. Martin had his sights set on a doctorate in the natural sciences. Gerhard was a mathematics whiz and was following the path towards an accounting degree. Jürgen had entered the military. Peter and I took a walk through Glückstadt together, visiting old horns. I hear that you are going to be a preacher. Yes, God has called me to full-time service. None of us, Martin, Gerhard, Jürgen, me, none of us understand you, Reinhard. Why would you choose something like our father has chosen? What future is there in it? Look at his church. It is the smallest in all of Germany. And the Pentecostals are embarrassing. Why would you choose to follow dad in his profession? It is not a profession. It is a calling. The greatest thing in the world is to serve God. He snorted in derision. Reinhard, where is God? Do you see him anywhere? Look around you. Did he build these buildings? Did he invent the railroad? Did he win the war? Look at the world. It is changing. Exciting things are happening in science and education, and you could make yourself a part of it. Be a doctor, a lawyer, a musician, a politician, or a professor. But something that counts. Anything but a preacher. You've got to learn that God has no real leverage in this world, little brother. Don't you see that? I became angry. God has more than leverage. He is the very lever itself. Nothing that exists in this world exists without him. You do not take one breath without his permission. I'm choosing to serve the very highest calling. I breathe my own air. God gets nothing done. Why doesn't God stop the bad things if he is so powerful? He has no leverage. Look at mom and dad. Without dad's pension from the government, his ministry would fall apart. Do you think for one moment he could have given us a roof over our heads with what he gets from Krempe? Huh? What a joke. Show me God's leverage. Where is it? 
I'll show you. I just met a Pentecostal preacher who drives a Volvo 544. I said, driving the name of the car home like a spike. He stopped in his trucks. No. Yes, he gave me a ride in it. He wants me to go to Sweden with him a few weeks from now. How's that for leverage? You are lying. I am not lying. I spoke in this church, and he is going to teach me about fundraising. I will show you that God has leverage in this world. All preachers don't have to be poor like Father. He shook his head and began to walk again. I never heard of a preacher driving a 544. That's just the beginning, I promised. We had reached the waterfront, and to my surprise, I saw that another large tanker ship moored at Town Pier. It gave me an inspiration. Come with me, I said. I will show you something. We walked onto the pier and up to the huge side of the ship tied to the pilings. I put my hand on it and pushed with all my might. Nothing happened. It did not move one inch. It was as if I didn't exist. I felt a bit taken aback. Looking down, I began to understand why. The tide was out. The harbor was shallow, and the full weight of the tanker had responded to the pull of gravity. It was now settled in the mud. When I was twelve years old, I came here when the tide was in. I explained. I put my hand on the side of a ship, and I got move the whole thing because it was lifted by the water. Now the tide is out. I can do nothing. God is like the tide, Peter. With him, nothing is impossible. He has leverage. Peter smiled a superior smile and shook his head. I feel sorry for you, Reinhardt. This is the time of your life when you should choose a career wisely. You will never have these days of your youth back again once they are gone. Put your energy into something real, not something you simply wish to be true. He made me feel sad. I felt like our family was coming apart at the seams. Mother and father would not tolerate this kind of talk coming from him, nor would he say it in front of them. He spouted such nonsense behind their backs. After seeing the hand of God in our family, how could he not embrace the Lord above all? We made our way home again. As the day for the decision about the trip to Sweden approached, I grew agitated. No matter how I prayed, I could not feel peace about it. The agitation came from how much I wanted to go and could not find a reason not to except for my lack of peace. It was as close to arguing with God as I had ever come. I accompanied Dad to camp again. On the way he suggested that I seek the help of Sister Elise Köhler in making this decision. She was known as a woman of prayer and a woman who received gifts of the Spirit. She also knew nothing about the decision facing me. I will do it, I said. I found her as soon as we entered the building and asked her to go with me into a smaller prayer room adjacent to the meeting hall. 
She agreed to do that. Sister Kula, I said, I have a problem. I don't know what to do. I've come to pray with you about it. Maybe the Lord will show you what I must do. Certainly, she replied. I could feel her eagerness to perform this act of support and kindness. She took my hand and we knelt together immediately. We had been praying for perhaps ten or fifteen minutes when suddenly she spoke up. I see a vision. I see a fast car going along a straight road, she said. Suddenly I see an angel of the Lord step into the middle of the road and the car stops. That's it. She looked up at me. I do not know what the vision means. I smiled at her and replied, But I have the interpretation of this vision, and I felt the warmth of the peace of God that passes understanding flood my heart. The peace that did not come from her vision, it came from submitting my own ambitious desires to the voice of the Spirit. God had already spoken in my heart. I had wanted a different answer. Her vision was a marvelous and gentle confirmation of his will for me. I needed no other prompting. I went home and wrote a quick letter to that Swedish pastor. I am not coming with you to Sweden, I wrote. I am going to Berlin to minister for the summer. He was very angry with me. Only a few years later, I found that the decision was the right one, since there were some stories around this minister that could have taken me off the very road I was going. The voice of the Spirit had disapproved from the very start. Oh, how I needed to learn to obey and not to question him. I managed to raise the necessary support for my Berlin summer mission on my own. This was another lesson in itself. The slow start to fundraising did not demand a new strategy after all. It only required faithfulness to the call. Soon I had packed my bags and had purchased a train ticket. Mother accompanied me to the station. Father had business at the church. This was for the first time I could be gone so long from home. Mother fretted and worried over little details of my packing, asking me again and again if I had packed my comb and toothbrush and extra underwear. I reassured her that all was well and I was ready to leave. We arrived on the Krempe-Holstein train platform early. Suddenly, we were alone with nothing to occupy our time. Our ability to carry on a conversation was polite at best. Usually, we had related to one another with Martin, Gerhard, Jürgen, Peter and Felicitas in the mix. Now the boys had gone to various colleges. Felicitas had gone to piano lessons. The silence between us grew awkward. After ten minutes, at last, we saw the puff of the steam engine rounding the corner down the long, shimmering track. My heart raced. Long before the train arrived, I picked up my luggage and stood with both hands full, eager to board. The smoke from the stuck seemed like the smoke of my altar of service to the Lord. 
my destiny was approaching, 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 ever nearer. My life of ministry was about to begin. I wanted to run to meet it. As the train pulled to a stop, releasing a cloud of steam across the platform, I suddenly became aware of another sound, a sound of anguish. Turning to my left, I saw my mother doubled over in pain. She was sobbing uncontrollably. In shock, I dropped my luggage and ran to her, taking her in my arm. What's wrong, Mama? What's wrong? She could not speak. She could only shake her head and sob into her handkerchief even more. I'd never seen such pain. At first, I assumed that she had become sick with some life-threatening illness. But as she carried on, I realized that she was not in physical pain, but emotional pain. It slowly dawned on me that she was mourning my leaving. But her emotions made no sense. I thought she would be glad to see me go. I had been the boy she wished had been a girl. All those years... I had felt myself a burden to her. I had been the naughty one that she might as well give a good hiding to at first sight. The boy who stole money for chocolate and could not be trusted. The one who lusted after the sinful circus. How was she now in such anguish to see me go to Berlin for the summer? I could hardly take it in. I embraced her again. And again, don't cry, Mama, the conductor called out, all aboard. My train was preparing to leave, and she still sobbed. Not one word of explanation had come from her lips. I began to struggle with the feeling that I should not leave her. If I stayed, her emotional turmoil would surely end. How could I go and willingly cause such suffering for my dear own mother? The conductor swung himself from the platform onto the doorstep of the passenger car. I wondered if some terrible thing would happen to me if I went through with my plans. Would I die in Berlin? No, no, these were not my plans. God had called me to Berlin. I had been invited. Suffering refugees were in need of the gospel. Jesus said, He that loves the father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Perhaps this was the very kind of dilemma he had anticipated for his servants. The engine chucked once, and a wrenching shudder ran through the length of the train. It chucked again and began to move, and I knew that my destiny lay in the direction of Berlin. Kissing her once more on the cheek, I grabbed my two suitcases and leaped past the conductor into the doorway of the moving train. My choice was clear. I followed the Lord. I turned and waved, but Mother could not wave back. She was still weeping uncontrollably into her handkerchief. As the chugging engine gained speed and increased the distance between us, I felt a deep root being ripped slowly from my chest. The pain of it 
was excruciating and wonderful at the same time. This was the way a boy became a man. He left his mother and followed God. Still, as the train platform faded in the distance, I felt such sadness. I did not understand my mother's outburst. Only years later, when I had children of my own, I gained that perspective. The grief that she had felt on the platform that day was the grief of revelation and regret. The revelation was that I had been the child she had overlooked. She had seen me through attitudes and assumptions and had never truly stopped to see me for who I was until that train came into view. Then it was too late. Suddenly her eyes were opened and she knew how much she loved me. She had her revelation just as I was leaving the nest. I smile now. All was forgiven. She had been God's good gift to me, and she had given me so much more than she knew. Nothing would ever diminish that fact. In time, God worked it all for good of our relationship. I served the Berlin mission in every way possible for the next three months. They had me involved in feeding, clothing, helping obtain government papers and citizenship for the refugees. I was able to preach the gospel there several times each day. A few received the Lord as Savior as a result. It was a difficult environment. Furthermore, as I continued there, mother and father telephoned me with the bad news. The reply from the Bible College in Wales had arrived. I had been rejected. The reason was the school instructed only in English. I spoke only German. I was devastated. Do you remember how you resisted learning English? Mother reminded me. I heard that familiar scolding edge in her voice. You always said, why do I have to learn this subject? Now it has stopped you from being able to go to Wales. Even in this conversation, I could hear her old attitudes towards me. She could not help herself. This cannot stop me, I said. This will not stop me. I know God wants me to go to that school. I know it. Why to that school, my father said. What's wrong with our Pentecostal school? Maybe now you will listen to me. Father, I will always listen to you. I will not always agree with you. I will learn English. I'm not the little boy who could not do his English homework. I have grown. My mind has grown. And I know God will enable me to learn fast. But it is too late. They have rejected you, son. You need to face it and go on. I did not reply for a long time. I felt hot tears well up in my eyes. I just don't understand it. I was sure this was God's direction for me. I hung up the telephone. Nothing could be done, so I continued in the mission and prayed for God to intervene. He intervened so beautifully. 
Reverend Morris returned to Kempe to follow up on our youth trip to England. My parents informed him of my Bible school rejection. Why? Because he does not speak English. No, no, cried Morris. That is no obstacle, not for Reinhardt. Let me write a letter to Sam Howells. He knows me well. I have interpreted for Reinhardt, and I know that he is not far from grasping the language. He is bright. He can do it. My parents could hardly say no. Morris wrote the letter and sent it. When I arrived home from Berlin, Mom and Dad presented me with a letter from the Bible school in Wales. The school had reversed its decision and opened the doors for me to come. After Morris's intervention, they had agreed to tutor me in English even as I undertook my two years of studies. I was ecstatic. I ran around the room with that letter in my hands, praising God for his goodness. My parents' objections were overwhelmed. Nothing could hold me back. I hugged them both. My mother was once again sobbing. They both realized that my life was taking a completely new direction, not one of their choosing, but certainly one that God was blessing. As the time of my departure neared, I could see a change in my father. He was beginning to accept that Martin would never be his successor. Martin was studying for a career in science. Hermann had invested so much of his hope in his eldest son, but it would be his youngest who took up the torch of ministry. He also realized he had done very little to prepare me in his stead. In an awkward sort of gesture, he invited me at last to speak to his little church in Krempe. It was my last Sunday in Germany before leaving for Wales. I stood and opened my Bible. As I began to speak, it was a repeat of Tostate. The people were deeply touched and responded with tears and a time of worship. As I shook the hands of all twenty-five or so members at the door, my father stood beside me. He heard them say to me again and again, Reinhard, you are called of God. You are truly called. Afterward, as my father and I rode the train toward home, he asked, Reinhard, where did you get that sermon? From the Bible, Father. But you've never been to Bible school. Where did you get those ideas? When I read the Bible, Father, things pop out of the page at me. He wrote some time in silence. I've read those same passages and I've never seen those things that you spoke of today. At home, I prepared to catch my train to England. One day, I noticed a large leather-bound volume on a bookshelf. It was a genealogy Martin had compiled of the Bonke family history. It represented a great deal of research. Only someone with my brother's intellect and tenacity would have compiled it. To me, it seemed impressive in a dark sort of way, and as I browsed through it, it disturbed me. I sensed I was part of the Bonke family history and breaking away from it at the same time. Two opposite clans were reaching out to define me. 
the historic family and the spiritual family. Like Abraham leaving Ur of the Chaldees, I was departing Germany, but I could not completely shake its dust from my feet. Father, I said, as I look at our family heritage, I am amazed that any of us serve the Lord today. Who in our family serves the Lord besides you? Very few, Father said, as he sat down opposite me. How did God break into the Bonke family? How did he do it? This was the defining question I wrote about in chapter 2. For the first time I heard the story of Louis Graf coming to Tons, of Grandfather August's healing and conversion, and it was the first time I heard the story of Father's tuberculosis, his healing, and his subsequent surrender to God. In these stories, as I prepared to leave for another nation and another culture that I admired, I began to gain a sense of my roots, both natural and spiritual. God's call on my life could not be totally separated from my East Prussian origin. This had been part of his mysterious design. Whatever he chose to do with me in life would grow out of this dark soil. It would be something similar to Isaiah's words concerning the coming of the Messiah. He would come forth as a root out of a dry ground. My life would follow an unlikely path, but I had already learned that God seemed to specialize in such triumphs. As I looked at the genealogy and the impressive list of godless bonky heroes, I saw my brilliant older brothers choosing to follow in those pagan footsteps rather than fathers. The words of Paul returned to me, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. Chapter 13 I travelled by train from Germany to Calais, France. Taking a ferry, I crossed the English Channel at its narrowest point to Dover. From there I caught a train to London, switching to a final connection that took me across the island to Wales. Greeted at the train station by a fellow student, I was escorted to Swansea by bus. Near the coast, we entered a walled compound through a small green door that the students affectionately called the narrow gate. Inside were a group of houses, student dormitories, classrooms, and lovely gardens on a slope that overlooked the sea. Always in that compound, I can remember the chatter of songbirds and the cooing of homing pigeons housed in the keeper's hutch. To me, this lovely place promised to become a spiritual garden of Eden, where I would feast on biblical and practical lessons pertaining to my calling. I was brimming with excitement for what God had in store for me here. Soon, however, the narrow gate took on an added meaning. I was surprised to learn that there were only two Pentecostal students in the entire student body. This I learned from my roommate, Bryn Jones. Shortly after being introduced to him, he informed me that he was the other Pentecostal student at Swansea. He instructed me that we were not to speak in tongues. 
it was forbidden. I looked at print with amazement, but Paul said in 1 Corinthians, forbid not to speak with tongues. How can a Bible school take a position that is unbiblical? You should not press that issue here, Reinhardt. Look at it this way. They know we are Pentecostal. That's why they have housed us together. They obviously want us here. Let's just abide by the rules and get all the Lord has for us. Of course, you are right. At least they have not signed a document like the Berlin Declaration saying we are of the devil. That is truly something to be thankful for. Still, to me this was a shock. I had not imagined that people of such vibrant faith might not speak in tongues. Pentecostals were the only Christians in Germany I knew who had any faith at all. Well, any with an ounce of life that might be detected. During my youth group visit during the summer, I had only visited Pentecostal churches. The pastor of the People's Church had recommended the school to me. He was charismatic. I had just assumed he would not recommend me to a school that did not approve of speaking in tongues. But, in fact, he had not recommended the school for its Pentecostal beliefs. Rather, he had recommended it for its evangelistic and missionary reputation. After a while, I began to learn more about the great Welsh revival that had given the school its identity. It had happened during the era called the Holiness Revival, a couple of years before Azusa Street in America. It had changed Wales from bitter to sweet, but had not featured speaking in tongues. Those who did not agree with tongues often looked to the Welsh Revival as their example of a true revival. Their Azusa Street, if you will. In that sense, they wanted to preserve what was pure and true about their own tradition. The discussion of tongues always seemed divisive to them, and they wished simply to avoid it, concentrating instead on the things that united them. As I spent two years among them, I met Methodists, Anglicans, Presbyterians, and Baptists, who obviously loved Jesus and were serious about living fully for him. The ministry of the Holy Spirit was alive and well among them. I could sense the reality of the Christian brotherhood we shared in spite of our denominational differences, and this exposure became important to me later in Africa. It was on the African continent that I expanded into mega-evangelistic crusades, and they included the sponsorship of many denominations. Well, I said to Bryn on that first day, perhaps they have housed us together to contain the tongues issue in one room. We will try not to let the cat out of the bag. As I began to attend classes, I had my hands too full to even think about theological and denominational differences. In the beginning, I took notes in a kind of English-German phonetic shorthand that only I could read. This primitive stage of learning preceded my mastery of writing in English. Though my spoken English was awkward and halting, I was reasonably well understood. Because of my calling, I was highly motivated to learn to speak the language fast, and I did. 
the lectures about the Bible and the work of the gospel taught in English made much better sense to me than the dull and lifeless language lessons I had suffered in German schools. As the first weeks passed, I learned that the word sea in Swansea stands for its place by the ocean. The school was perched where the Bristol Channel enters the Celtic Sea. There are a few sunny days in this part of the world, but mostly rain, rain, rain. All the necessary ingredients to maintain the beautiful gardens. But in this region, when the sun does shine, people take full advantage of it. In our case, we took our classes from the classrooms to the beautifully landscaped lawns and fairways. These are some of the most blessed memories I have of this place. Ian Jones was my favorite instructor. He was the senior member of the faculty and had been a contemporary of Rhys Howells. I felt I was rubbing shoulders with history being near him. When I was introduced to his Bible courses, I only thought I knew my Bible. Hearing him was like drinking from a fresh-flowing fountain as he expounded the word as I have never heard it before. I could hardly endure the time between his classes, feeling something like a palpable hunger for more of the word. He could see my eagerness, and I felt a special bond with him. He also taught the required course in homiletics, which is the art and craft of preaching. Before coming to school, I'd never thought of pulpit delivery as an art form or a craft. To me, preaching was simply opening my Bible and speaking as the Holy Spirit gave utterance. With this approach, the audiences in Tostet and Krempe had been deeply moved. I had also been effective in Berlin. Plus, I had seen a man come to Jesus in my first street sermon as a boy. I knew nothing of homiletics. Within two months of my arrival, Ian asked me to deliver my first sermon in front of the homiletics class. I would speak, and the class would critique the delivery. Actually, the assignment was called an exposition, and the specific topic was the book of Second Timothy. I had a personal grasp of Second Timothy, Paul's final address to his young protégé. I could hardly wait to let loose on the subject, but letting loose on the subject was not exactly the assignment. An exposition is a disciplined delivery, something a teacher or even a college professor might present. As expositions go, I would say that I delivered more of an exhortation. Ian was not impressed. My halting English was not the problem. He and the entire class, in fact, began to take my exposition apart, criticizing its lack of structure, forethought, and organization. For them, my sermon was purely an academic exercise. They focused their criticism not so much on what I said, but how I said it. The art and craft of pulpit delivery had apparently escaped me. I thought Ian Jones would understand the heart of my presentation and that he would stand up for me, but he did not. Perhaps I had totally misread 
what I thought was the special bond between us. I was devastated. For me, this was not academic. It was an acid test of my ability to preach the gospel. I had delivered my soul and had fallen short of connecting to my audience. In deep pain, I escaped into the far reaches of the Italian garden to a stone tool shed. It was secluded and hopefully soundproof. I crept inside and broke down in tears. My father, I'm not a preacher or an expositor or a teacher or an evangelist, but I have called you to be an evangelist. In mid-cry, the Holy Spirit stopped me dead in my tracks and dried up my tears with these words. Everything else became meaningless. I had heard and saw it and accepted it. My sermons might never be homiletical masterpieces. They might never be printed in books and reproduced as examples of form and content. They were meant for the ear and for the heart of the sinner, not for professors or great books or classrooms. Before God, the only critic that counted was the man or woman who raised their hand and came forward to receive Jesus. All else counted as dung. Yes, I shouted, I'm an evangelist. You have called me to be an evangelist. From that day to this, there has never been any doubt about my calling. God confirmed it to me in that little stone shed after flunking my first homiletics test. God's true lessons are never academic. The glory of the Swansea Bible College was that it forced us to live by faith. We prayed for everything, for the huge supply of winter coal necessary to heat our buildings, to the bus fare to take us street preaching on the weekends. The school supplied only food and lodging for us, all the extras we were instructed to pray in. And always we were required to pray in secret without publicly mentioning our needs. This had been George Muller's legacy and the legacy of Rhys Howells as well. Now Rhys's son Samuel followed the faith path. I learned to embrace it. Whenever a student or staff member saw their need met by the Lord, they would testify about it. These stories were meant to encourage the other students to live in complete dependence upon God. The phrase that was used when God met a need was, I've been delivered. Samuel Howells joined us in a student prayer meeting one morning not long after I arrived. Winter was knocking at the door. Nighttime temperatures were plunging towards the freezing mark. He asked that we pray for several hundred pounds to buy coal to heat the classrooms and dormitories. This amount was needed by the end of the week. To me this seemed a huge sum of money. I had never faced a need so large, nor had I been forced to come up with such an amount so quickly. 
I joined my prayers with the others and waited to see what God would do. At the end of the week, Samuel returned to our prayer meeting. His eyes were bright and his face beaming. Praise God, we've been delivered, he said. Right then, I prayed in my heart, Lord, I also want to be a man of faith. I want to see your way of providing for needs. Soon thereafter, a missionary visited the college. As he spoke, I heard the Lord speak in my heart to give all the money I had received from home. My parents and the church in Kemper and Glückstadt sent packages containing gifts and money to help me with expenses beyond room and board. This was all I had. I agreed to give it, but then I decided to hold back one pound for emergencies. Just one pound, I reasoned. As I prepared to make the gift, I knew God had asked for all of my spending money. How would I know what he would do if I continued to hold back? I gave it all. Time passed, and I had nearly forgotten about it. One Saturday, an invitation came asking me to minister on Sunshine Corner Beach near Swansea. This was a popular weekend gathering place for families. A local church had established a regular outreach to children there. I invited Tön de Reuter, a fellow student from Holland, to accompany me. As we searched our pockets, we found that I had exactly enough bus fare to get us both there, but no money to bring us back. We prayed and decided that we would put our faith to the test. We would go and believe God for the return fare. We went. The ministry was fine. As we finished and returned to the bus stop, the pastor of the church came walking along the street. He recognized us and knew we had been ministering on the beach. I felt immediately that I was witnessing the deliverance God had planned for us. Hey, boys, would you join me for a cup of tea? We would love to, I said. He took us to a local cafe near the beach, and we had several cups of tea and passed the time in pleasant conversation. When we finished, he called for the bill and opened his wallet to pay. I looked inside and saw more money than I could imagine. I began talking to God about it. I felt sure he had brought this man to us as our provision for the return trip. Surely God would move on him in his abundance to donate our return bus fare now. We would say nothing about it. Well, thank you for the tea, I said. We must be going now. We have to catch a bus back to school. This brought him fell on deaf ears. He paid the bill, closed his wallet, and did not offer to pay for anything more. We smiled grimly at one another as he walked away, leaving us at the bus stop. The bus would soon arrive, and we had no fare. How would we make it? In my heart I prayed, Lord, where is the fare? How will you provide? Just then, 
a woman who was leaving the beach area saw us at the stop. As the bus approached, she came running. Boys, here is a little something for you. Thank you so much for ministering on the beach today. I so appreciated it. She grabbed my hand and pressed money into it, then walked away, leaving us standing there. When I looked down and counted it, it was exactly enough for the bus fare for both of us to return to school. Praise God, Tön! We've been delivered! I felt that day like I was walking in the footsteps of George Müller and Rhys Howells. More than that, I was learning something important about relationship to my Heavenly Father. It is never my job to second-guess His provision. He might use a preacher, a woman, a layman, a criminal, a saint, a natural disaster, a beggar, or he might tell me to take my fishing pole and go look in the mouth of a fish for my bus fare. He is unlimited, and it is his delight to surprise us. Most of all, I was beginning to learn that faith in God would take me places I would not otherwise go. It would produce results I would not otherwise see. Jesus said that with faith we could speak to a mountain and see it removed into the sea. I was not moving mountains yet, but with faith my relationship to God had come alive. It was dynamic, making a difference in the world around me. As the first year of my school came to an end, I was praying one day and felt strongly that I should return home for the summer break. This feeling came in spite of the fact that I had no money to purchase the train fare. After praying more about it, I decided I would trust God to supply the money. I would not tell anybody of my need, but I would act as if the need was already met. That day, I went to a travel agent in Swansea and booked a reservation in advance. No deposit required. As the day of my departure approached, I received a packet from home. My heart rejoiced. I thought, this is it. I opened it thinking that the money I needed would be inside. It was not there. The day of my booking arrived. I packed my bags, still no money. I found my friend Tone and asked him to agree with me in prayer for the supply. We went into one of the empty classrooms and began praying. I did not feel our prayers were effective. As we continued, the words of a song came to mind. Tone, we've prayed enough. God has heard us. Let's sing together. I led him in a song we often sung in Swansea. There's nothing too hard for thee. I'm trusting alone in thee. It's never too late for thee, dear Lord. Suddenly, I received the answer in my spirit. The money is there, turn. Where? Somehow I had received in my spirit the evidence of things not seen. 
It is there. I don't know where, but it is there. Let's go and get my bags. We run from the classroom across the garden area as we headed towards the narrow gate. A fellow student named Jin approached me. He was an upperclassman graduating that year. I did not know him well. You need money to travel home, he said. I'd like to help you. How much do you need? God knows how much. I will not say. He also was a student of faith. He reached in his pocket and pulled out a wad of money, placing it in my hands. And then he abruptly turned and walked away. It was the last time I saw him as a Bible college student. As Tern and I hurried to the travel agent's office, I counted it. Tern recounted it. Praise God, Reinhardt. We've been delivered. It was just the amount we needed for the fair. The Sunshine Beach story and the train ticket story may seem small compared to other faith stories that come later in life, but they may be the most important stories of all. In our life of faith, we must begin small and graduate to greater challenges. In that respect, we are like the boy David. He first killed a lion and bear while protecting sheep, and then he was ready to kill Goliath, delivering his people from the Philistines. And what was true for David is true for all. You have faith stories too. No matter how small, remember them, recite them, count them, and celebrate them. They build your faith for what is coming next in your life. As the first year at Swansea became the second year, the cat got out of the bag. My Pentecostal beliefs became fully known. For one thing, I could not keep totally quiet about it. For another, most everyone at the school was curious. Some were more than curious. Many times Bryn and I were invited into polite discussions of the baptism of the Holy Spirit at odd times and places. When someone asked, I answered. In fact, the official rule of the evangelical school was that we were not allowed to talk about it. But discreetly, even instructors would come after hours and ask Bryn and me to tell them about our experience. Most of them compared their own experiences and could see that we had something they didn't. In general, they tended to lose the enthusiasm for their experiences with God while ours burned endlessly in our hearts. This attracted rather than repelled them, though I suppose for some there was a kind of spiritual jealousy. For the most part, we developed great respect for one another, even though there remained an official divide. Finally, all arguments for the baptism of the Holy Spirit fall short. It is seldom good biblical positions that win the day. Rather, it is the example of the Spirit's overflow. One day after hours, my Dutch friend, Tern de Reuter, came to me. Reinhardt, he said, I want what you have. I want the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Let's go to one of the empty classrooms, and you pray for me to receive it. Of course, I said, and off we went. Once there, he said, 
I want you to know that I want the baptism, but I do not want the speaking in new tongues. He said it like I had the power to hold back that part of the blessing. For a moment, I was stumped. I thought, how can anyone receive the Holy Spirit without speaking in tongues? Should I pray, Lord, baptize, turn with your Holy Spirit, but hold back on the speaking in tongues? Amen. But then I thought, Jesus is the baptizer. Let's see what he does. Very well, turn, I said. I will pray for you to receive just the baptism of the Holy Spirit, nothing more. We prayed for about ten minutes. Then lightning struck. He fell from his chair and began rolling on the floor. He was not just speaking in tongues. He was trumpeting in tongues. On and on he went until finally, after several minutes, he calmed down. You got it, turn, I said. You got it. You even spoke in new tongues. No, I didn't. His face was flushed with embarrassment. You did. I did not. Well then, what did you speak when you spoke what you spoke? What did I hear? It was loud enough that I feared you might draw the attention of the school authorities. A puzzled look came over his face. He thought long and hard about it before replying, I just spoke unspeakable words, he said at last. I burst out laughing. What a fine euphemism. We are friends to this day. Turn went on to be a respected lecturer at a Bible college in the Netherlands and even worked in the administration. Today he pastors a Pentecostal congregation in the Netherlands. I graduated in 1961. I was 21 years old. As I neared the end of my time, I wrote my father asking if I could perform a practicum under his leadership in Krempe. In the meantime, our family had moved there. The church had built an apartment in the second story of the meeting house. Mother and father were both living there, and the train commute was a thing of the past. Serving with father would allow me to be exposed to the realities of actual church ministry before I assumed such duties for myself. It was a required period of testing before ordination and licensing with the German Pentecostal Church, the Arbeitsgemeinschaft der Christengemeinden in Deutschland, or in short, ACD, as we called it. Father was delighted by my request and immediately agreed to it. Furthermore, he informed me that the Felberter Mission Board, which was the foreign mission branch of the ACD, would require that I follow the practicum with two years of pastoring a church before they would consider a missions appointment to South Africa. He told me that he would welcome me to do this pastoring also at his church. This sounded like my best opportunity to follow my calling, so the plan was set. After finishing school in Swansea, I said my goodbyes. Lifelong relationships were begun there at the school in Wales. So many memories. The fellowship, the tests of faith, and the wonderful Bible classes. 
This had now become forever a part of me and would follow me wherever I went. Furthermore, my English had become passable. I traveled by train to London. Having some money to spare, I decided I would simply take an unguided sightseeing tour of the great city. Big Ben, the famous Parliament building, Trafalgar Square, the Tower of London. I hopped from bus to bus, crisscrossing the city as if on a holiday, which in fact I was my first holiday. At length I arrived at a place called Clapham Commons, a large park in a lovely residential section of the city. With no specific destination in mind, I decided to stretch my legs. I began walking through the surrounding neighborhood totally at random. All of a sudden, I stopped because I saw a blue nameplate in front of a house. On that nameplate I read, George Jeffreys. I thought to myself, could this be the great George Jeffreys who had founded the Elim Pentecostal churches in Ireland and England? I had read much about him. He had been a great firebrand evangelist who had traveled across the world, preaching to overflow crowds in some of the largest venues. Miraculous signs and wonders had accompanied his preaching. I recalled that 10,000 had been saved in his historic Birmingham crusade. 14,000 had responded during a crusade in Switzerland. He was known to many as the greatest evangelist Britain had produced after George Whitfield and John Wesley. My heart pounded with anticipation to think that of all the residences in London I might have stumbled upon, I had stumbled upon his. I paused at the gate. Should I go in and introduce myself? I felt almost compelled to do it. But who was I to do such a thing? I felt a spiritual and natural link with this man. As with so many other British revival leaders, Jeffreys had been born in Wales to a miner's family. He had been a teenager during the great Welsh revival of 1904 and 1905, and for him the fire had never gone out. What especially linked him to me was that he had also ridden the tide of the Pentecostal revival that followed from Azusa Street and onward. He had embraced both revivals. You only live once, I decided. I walked through the front garden gate and climbed the porch, pausing at the door. There I rang the bell. A lady opened the door. Pardon my intrusion, ma'am. Does the George Jeffreys live here, who was that famous firebrand evangelist I've heard so much about? Yes, he does. May I please see him? No, under no circumstances. She had hardly said no when I heard a deep voice from within the house say, Let the young man come in. I squeezed past that lady in a heartbeat and 
into the house. As my eyes adjusted to the dim light, I saw him coming slowly down a staircase, holding it unsteadily as he made his way downward to me. As he reached the landing, I stepped forward, took his hand, and introduced myself. I told him I had a call of God on my life to be an evangelist and to preach the gospel in Africa, that I had been to college in Swansea and was now returning home to Germany. What happened next was extraordinary. All of a sudden, he took me by the shoulders and fell to his knees, pulling me to the floor with him. He placed his hands on my head and began to bless me as a father blesses his son, as Abraham blessed Isaac, who blessed Jacob, and on and on. The room seemed to light up with the glory of God as he poured out his prayer over me. I was dazed by that glory. I do not remember the words with which he blessed me, but I do remember their effect. My body felt electrified, tingling with divine energy. After about half an hour, he finished. I stood up and helped him to his feet. He seemed very frail. We said goodbye. The lady came and escorted him away. He could hardly stand, nor could I, for different reasons. I stumbled from his house and staggered back towards Clapham Commons like a drunken man. There, with my head spinning, I waited for a bus to carry me on my way to the railway station. What were the odds that this had happened to me? Even more, what did it mean that it had happened to me? It seemed like a dream. I had to convince myself again and again that it had actually happened. Why would God grant me this unexpected and unplanned meeting as a 21-year-old Bible college graduate in London on his way home to serve a practicum at the smallest church in all of Germany? I didn't know. I kept it to myself. I arrived at home and began the process of serving with my father in Krempe. I had been home for just a few months when one day father said to me, Son, did you hear the sad news? No. What news? George Jeffries died in London. George Jeffries? That's impossible, father. I just saw him. I met him. And then I told him the story of my meeting with him in London. In fact, he died on January 26, 1962. I was still 21, three months short of my 22nd birthday. As I absorbed the news, I realized something wonderful had happened in London. I had caught Elijah's mantle that day. God had connected me with former generations of evangelists, George Whitfield, John Wesley, Evan Roberts, George Muller, Rhys Howells, George Jeffries. The gospel is like a baton in a relay race. That day I got the baton 
into my hands. The fire I had already within me. The fire is always fresh. The baton of the gospel is always old, and it is passed on from generation to generation. I now understood that on that day in London, the baton and the flame had met. I could not yet dream of what it would mean. Chapter 14 Upon returning to Krempe, I became something of a novelty within German Pentecostal circles. To some I was considered a prodigal, having left the fold for an evangelical school in Great Britain. Others thought I had snapped our denomination's Bible school, as if I thought I was too good for it. Still others regarded me with curiosity, wondering how my Swansea education might change me. Had I lost my German Pentecostal identity? In fact, some things had changed. Soon after arriving, I departed even further from the norm by acquiring a new Volkswagen Beetle. The Beetle was a great choice, the most inexpensive and reliable car in Germany. It was just beginning to become popular in America and elsewhere. Designed by Ferdinand Porsche in the 1930s, the ugly little rear-engine car had been mocked by Western automakers. But after the war, the Volkswagen began to write automobile history, making affordable transportation available to people like me. My humble little Beetle was hardly a prestigious Volvo 544, nor did it resemble the elegance of Louis Graf's Mercedes, but it was a huge departure from the way my father had always operated. The Volkswagen's transmission required a skilled double pump of the accelerator when gearing up or gearing down. It was a source of pride for me not to brush the teeth of the transmission when shifting gears. In America they call it grinding the gears, enjoyed driving the little car with real expertise, no grinding the gears. Not long after arriving at home, a leader from the Pentecostal Fellowship, ACD, came to visit and inspect our practicum arrangement. After having dinner at our house, he said to me, Reinhardt, the ACD does not recognize that college in Wales. It is not Pentecostal. The academic credits you earned there will not count with our organization. You will have to start over in our Bible school if you are serious about your missionary appointment. I was stunned to silence. When at last I found my voice, all I could say in reply was, No, sir, I will not go to the Bible school again. He left our house with an appreciation for something mother and father often said. He has a mind of his own. In fact, having my own mind was not the issue. It was God who had led me to Swansea. I would not think of it as something less than what it truly was, a great preparation for the mission field. Peter came home from the university. Among other things, he wanted to see if I had stuck with my calling 
or if my experience in Wales had changed my mind about becoming a minister. You are serving a practicum with Father in Krempe? Yes. So you are going to take Martin's place, eh? Like Jacob and Esau. No, I will not take Martin's place. I will not be Father's successor. I'm going to be an evangelist and a missionary in Africa. You still haven't let go of that idea, he chuckled. You have always been little slow to catch on to things. I rather be slow on the right track than fast on the highway to hell. You do sound like father. Do you plan to get married like him? Yes. Then I think you are going to be one of the most irresponsible people on earth. What do you mean? You are going to have children and not be able to pay for their education. Education is the only thing that stands between your children and poverty. Without father's pension, the church in Krempe could not have allowed any of us to go to college. Think of that. God's work pays in more than money, and education is overrated. There are a lot of college-educated fools. He sighed like he was dealing with a dimwit. Well, maybe... I will make enough money to keep you from starving, he said. I'm going to be a doctor. I want to be where the money is. It's money that gets things done, and being a minister of the gospel just doesn't seem to have any financial leverage in this world. God has plenty of leverage, more than enough. It was the same old argument. After the conversation, I felt deeply pained. I went to my room and placed my Bible on the bed in front of me. Lord, I need to hear from you. You have called me to Africa. How will you take care of me? Will I be in poverty like Peter says? Or will you see to it that I am not a poor beggar? Speak to me, I pray. I opened my Bible at random and read the first verse that came before my eyes. I did that in the same way Mother had done when asking whether or not the Lord would protect us crossing the Baltic Sea to Copenhagen. The verse that I read was Nehemiah 9, verse 15, And gave us them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought us forth water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and promised them that they should go in to possess the land which thou hadst sworn to give them. I made a deal with God right then. Perhaps the reward for serving him was not luxury food and drink. His provision might be simply bread and water, the basics necessary to sustain life. Okay, Lord, I said, if you provide bread and water, that is good enough for me. I accept it, and it will be like a gourmet meal to me. I would rather serve you and eat your bread and drink your water than feast with a wealthy man who do not know or care about you. Of course, as the years passed, I found that the bread he provided has been the finest cake with frosting, and the water has been the most exquisite tea. His supply has always been more than I asked for, as the next story will illustrate. At the moment, I had concentrated on the bread and water part of the scripture, 
but the full promise involved possessing a land that flowed with milk and honey. After a few weeks of serving the practicum, Father and I climbed into the Volkswagen and traveled north to the town of Rendsburg for a regional pastor's conference. It was near the Pöppendorf prison camp, where we had first been reunited as a family after the war. Along the way, we visited the old camp and recalled the difficulties of those times. Father did not want to spend much time there. The first thing I noticed was the absence of that ugly barbed wire. Vegetation grew where once fear and misery ruled. Then, on to Rendsburg. During the pastor's meeting, the host, Reverend Franz Wegner, approached me with some startling news. Every year in summer, he said, we have a tent revival here. I have been praying about it, and the Holy Spirit tells me that you, Reinhardt, are to be our tent evangelist this year. Father and I were both amazed. Pastor Wegner was one of the senior clergymen in the ACD. He was well respected. I've just come from Bible college and don't have any experience, I said. I am merely doing my practicum at this time. I know that. I have also heard that you are called of God. In fact, it is known that your calling is the call to be an evangelist. This is what we need here in Rendsburg, an evangelist. How long do the tent meetings last? As long as you need to get the message out. We will not put any limit on your sermons. No, I mean, how many days will the meetings continue? Three weeks, Sunday morning services included. I didn't say anything, but my math skills had improved so that I could quickly calculate the number of sermons I would have to preach. Twenty-four in all. In my Bible college files, I might be able to find a dozen sermons ready to go. My preaching disaster in Ian Jones's homiletics class also came to mind. I had barely begun my practicum. I hardly felt ready for this. It seemed impossible. So the Holy Spirit has spoken to you? I asked. He has. Well, I'm confident that if he has spoken to you, he will also speak to me, and I will pray about it. Okay, you pray, Reinhardt. And then call me, he said cheerily. I honestly thought I had shaken him off my trail with that answer. Back in Kremper, I knelt at my bedside. Father, should I accept this invitation? Expecting to hear nothing. I imagined that I would simply say to Pastor Wegner, God has not spoken, therefore I cannot accept. The opposite happened. Suddenly these words were burned into my heart. Go, and twelve baskets full shall remain. I immediately knew this answer had not come from my mind. It was not the answer I sought. Furthermore, it was a profound statement, the kind that had the familiar imprint of the Holy Spirit on it. God was stirring up the vision Grandma Bouchers had when I was ten. She had seen me distributing a loaf of bread to a large crowd. 
the loaf continued to grow. The scene had been inspired by the gospel accounts of the feeding of the five thousand. In that story found in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, a little boy had provided five loaves and two fish to Jesus in the face of a hungry multitude. Jesus had used the boy's lunch to feed them all. Afterward, twelve baskets full of bread fragments had been gathered in order to show that the Lord had not only met the need, but had supernaturally provided more than enough. Go, and twelve baskets shall remain. This word from God could not have hit the mark more perfectly. Without hesitation, I called Pastor Wigner. The Lord has spoken to me, I said. I will come and preach in your tent meetings. I began to prepare in prayer and Bible study. I reviewed the dozen sermon outlines I had made in Bible school. But that's when I noticed that I did not have a dozen sermons. I really had just one. One sermon presented in a dozen disguises. Seeing this for the first time made me feel even more inadequate. But today I understand it. I still have only one sermon. I'm an evangelist. I preach the simple ABC of the gospel. When I preach, I'm not trying to sound like a professor or a Bible scholar or a homiletics expert. I'm helping people who are outside of the kingdom of God enter it by the blood of the Lamb. So I repeat the ABC over and over again, each in perhaps a new disguise or with a new illustration or applied to a new culture or occasion, but always the same good news of God's invitation to join his family. I was soon to be 22 years old. When the day of the meetings in Rendsburg arrived, I drove with my Volkswagen northward from Krempe. It was a lovely spring day and the trees were blossoming. The fragrance of apple and cherry blossoms filled the air. I arrived in Rendsburg early. The tent had been set up at the huge Viehmarkt Square and a woman was seated in a chair at the main entrance. The flaps were open. I packed my beetle and approached her, smiling Looking inside, feeling a bit shy, I did not introduce myself. I looked at the rows of chairs set up beneath the canvas and felt a nervous knot in my stomach. If I may ask a question, how many seats are in the tent? There are 250 chairs. How many people do you think will show up? The woman sighed wearily and shook her head. Her attitude struck a familiar chord with me. For a moment I thought she might say, I ought to give you a good hiding right now, young man, and get it over with, as my mother had said so often in my younger years. But then I quieted my thoughts, realizing that my mind was taunting me with old memories. I was not a naughty boy anymore. I was called to be an evangelist here in Rendsburg. There were 250 seats in that tent for the hearing of the gospel. Well, the woman continued, lowering her voice in a confidential tone, 
I'll tell you the truth. Our pastor has put us on a limb. He went against the board of elders and invited some young evangelist who isn't even dry behind the ears to be our preacher this year. I won't be surprised if we don't fold the tent and go home early. I see, I said. Thank you. I returned quickly to my car, feeling suddenly anxious and unbalanced. That woman had no idea the power of her words to turn my confidence into mush. Satan himself could not have put a greater scare into me. Looking back, however, I suppose it was a test arranged by my Father in heaven. I drove out of town to a secluded spot on the north Ostsee Canal, a man-made waterway that crossed the peninsula between the Baltic and North Seas. I stopped the car, fixing the handbrake. Oh, Lord, I prayed. Help me, help me, help me. How can I possibly go on if you do not rescue me now? As I prayed and talked to God about it, I began to feel peace. It is the kind of peace that only comes from Him. My thoughts returned to the truth. I had not come to Rendsburg because I was barely out of Bible college and hardly dry behind the ears. I was here because the Holy Spirit had spoken to Pastor Wigner. He had also spoken clearly to me. As the voices of doubt and fear were slowly replaced by the voice of the truth, Peace again flooded my heart. I praised his holy name in English and in other tongues. From the outspoken lady, I had learned that Pastor Wegner had obeyed the Holy Spirit even above the voice of his board of elders. She may have seen it as a bad sign, but to me it was a sign that I was God's choice. If God before me, who can be against me, I thought. I stayed in this place of faith and peace and prayed until the time for the start of the first service. When I arrived at the tent, it was full. Perhaps the people had come out of curiosity to see how the young preacher would fail. Maybe they thought it would be entertaining. Pastor Wigner met me outside. He was very excited and led me to the platform. The music was beginning. I sat down and looked out over the crowd. Pastor Wegner stood and announced eight evangelist tonight. In the front row of the audience, my eyes met the eyes and flew to her cheeks. Her face turned red and she bowed her head and embarrassment. But it was totally unnecessary. I was a... Later this became a good story for both of us to repeat. When I stood to pray, I saw in my mind what I might describe as the shape of the gospel. My preaching did, and I simply filled in the outline with words and ideas and scriptures into my mind. It was the ABC of the gospel that came out of my mouth. The Holy Spirit did his work. Many raised their hands for salvation in that service. My heart overflowed with gratitude. As the meetings continued, 
me to her even more, and my interest became strong. I found myself making a her and to have conversation with her after the meetings. Others were attracted to her as a very pleasant personality. I could not help but wonder if such an attractive girl... I asked her the question that was most on my mind. If God called you go? No, she replied immediately. Never. I would never die on the spot. No longer did I seek to be near her or to have... But I was seriously seeking a wife who would share my calling. I had no interest from that purpose. In the second week of the meetings, the local newspaper and a photographer to do a front-page story for the Rendsburg newspaper. The reporter came to Pastor Wegner, who introduced him to me. You have speak to the main speaker, not to his apprentice. I need a statement from the evangelist's head. Licking his pencil lead, he began to write on his notepad. Have you saved your first soul, young man? Oh, I have. I saw eleven. Just a boy of eleven? Huh? You don't appear yet to have had. In fact, I had not yet shaved in my life. My hair was a boyish shade of my beard so light that it didn't show. The photographer took my picture and the story not hold the crowds. What a wonderful evangelistic crusade it was. My four weeks and twice each Sunday. In terms of numbers, it certainly does not out of the smallest numbers too. Some of the people who were saved in that meeting in Rendsburg are still among my ministry partners. They support me as I reach out. I did not run dry. When the meetings ended, I could it for another three weeks. Twelve baskets full remained. I brought a number of the converts from the meetings to Krempe. Father invited his church members in Kremperts, stood in front of the people, and with tears and praise to God, told of their conversion. The fruit of the meetings was bountiful, and my father, Hermann, was these testimonies. Little did I know that the meeting offers to preach. Word spread quickly through the ACD that if you want from all over Germany, some from as far away as Switzerland and England. Invalid. He extended his hand to me and shook it warmly. He then ACD recognized the anointing of God upon my ministry. They would not have saw this happen. It pleased him, but it also strained our relationship. In his him, nor would he want them to be. He was a straightforward man of faith. Also, he did not receive offers to preach like I did. His preaching style was staged in his life. The pattern was well set for him. By contrast, I was his younger, and I was breaking the mold. Already I received invitations to preach. I had the calling of an evangelist. Still, whether consciously or subconsciously, he began to put pressure on me not to accept this preaching invitation one way or the other. I did decline many offers after praying and not feeling God's peace. After a while, Father could not seem to help himself. If I went to the right, more and more we did not see eye to eye on important matters.
My 22nd birthday on April 19, 1962. Father and I began to discuss the years. The ACD required that the church I served be affiliated with the denomination. Simply must appoint me to Africa, Father, I said one day. Well, the board determines appointments. They may have a missionary need in India or Indonesia and not in South Africa in the beginning. Are you saying that you would refuse it? I would have to refuse it. Are you saying that the missions board would not consider my call to South Africa? Oh yes, they will consider it, but it may not be available. Available? How could it not be available? Would they appoint me to some place God had not called me? It has happened to others. Perhaps you should prepare yourself that it might happen to you. I do not want to prepare myself that way. I will pray that God will move on their hearts to appoint me to the place He has appointed me. If they do not acknowledge that, I am not sure what I will do. Reinhardt, I must say that I do not feel your call to Africa should become before the need of the place where you live. You were born in Germany. This is your home, and we need revival. How can you go off to preach in Africa when the needs are so desperate around you here? It seems hypocritical. Let revival begin here first. Jesus said that after the Holy Spirit came on the disciples at Pentecost, they were to go to Jerusalem first, then to Samaria, then to the uttermost part of the earth. You seem to be jumping to the last of the list before serving the first. Many of us have done the hard work of sowing in this hard German soil for decades. Still, we have not seen much harvest. The Lord said, one sows, another reaps. How will we reap if our reapers go off to Africa? I had to think this argument through before replying. My own heart and calling was on the line. In fact, it was in that very place of my calling that I found my answer. I said to him, The Lord said to pray that the Lord of the harvest will send workers into his harvest field. It is not for me to decide where I will serve, Father. If God sends me to Germany, I will go to Germany. If he sends me to Africa, then I must go to Africa. The other issues are in his hands. This difference was never settled between us until I actually went to Africa. In the meantime, Father continued to make this Jerusalem first argument. It was a great test of my calling. If I had not been so sure of my direction, I might have found it compelling. I might have changed my course and missed so much of what God had planned to accomplish through me. I began to receive offers to serve my two-year practicum beyond Kempe. In fact, some of the largest churches in the denomination called me. For a young man my age, this was unheard of. Father was again taken aback at this early success. It placed more strain on our relationship and forced me to think more deeply about how and where I would pastor for the required two years. The more I thought about it, the more I began to consider that I should accept none of these fine offers, nor would I serve in Krempe. 
Not only did I want father to feel slighted, but I did not want my brothers to think that I was trying to take Martin's place as father's successor. Instead of a choice between Krempe and one of the larger churches, I began to see a third way. I felt I should make a completely new mark. Since evangelism was my calling, I could go where no church existed. I could see people converted and after two years leave a brand new church behind when I left for Africa. I began to make a mental checklist of possible cities where I could accomplish this kind of plan. Also, as I thought about being a pastor for two years, I thought about the extra challenge it would create being unmarried. When preaching in other churches, I found myself receiving too much attention from women who wanted to introduce me to their eligible daughters. This could distract me from a full focus on evangelism. I did not want this complication to continue when I began my work as a pastor. Being married to a woman who shared my calling would be a great blessing and a great relief of mind. At that time, Father and I escorted some of our young people to a musical youth rally held in Neumünster. All of the church youth from the region sent musical groups to represent them at this rally in a kind of talent contest. While there, a beautiful mandolin player caught my eye. She never once looked my way, but I had a feeling she saw my every move. How could I know that? Well, actually, I didn't know that. I just wanted it to be true so badly that I imagined it was so. I certainly saw her every move, even though I pretended not to. I watched her all evening from the corner of my eye, not wanting to be obvious. If I was so smitten by her, oh, how I wanted her to be smitten by me, too. But as the night wore on, I began to doubt that she knew I existed. Not once did I have the satisfaction of receiving even a sideways glance. The challenge of gaining her attention grew to the sky. During the service she occasionally shared secrets with another girl from Mane. Boys never did things like that. She cupped her hand and whispered into her friend's ear. Suddenly, I wanted to be the subject of that secret she shared. I wanted to be special to her in that way. Every move this beautiful young musician made ignited my imagination with a greater desire to know her. Other groups stood on the platform to perform their musical numbers. As they did, I noticed how she cradled her mandolin like a child, stroking its teardrop-shaped soundboard with her fingers. As a member of the musical Bonkis and a guitar strummer myself, I appreciated that she had chosen an unusual stringed instrument. This Italian dual-stringed guitar produced delicate tones. It was a descendant of the romantic lute and of David's harp. In Germany we were used to music played with pomp and bombast. The mandolin was a rare choice here, and I liked that about her. At last it was announced that the musical group Fromane would perform. She stood with her friend and walked to the platform. Now I knew 
where to find her. The city of Marne was some fifty miles to the north of Krempe on the North Sea coast. Already the scheming begun. Perhaps, I thought, I will be invited to preach there one day. From the platform she plucked the mandolin strings, and they began to vibrate, creating a lovely melody. The girls began to harmonize. Soon I saw a look of consternation cross their features. Something was wrong. As in most musical performances, the musicians should never betray that anything was wrong. Part of the challenge of performing is to make sure the audience is at ease. But the problem they faced was insurmountable. The limits of their vocal range would not allow them to reach the song's climax. They stopped. I am so sorry, the mandolin player said. I set the key too high. We will have to start again. She began to strum the introduction again, playing in the adjusted key, and the song was performed beautifully. Any hope of placing in the contest, however, was lost. I was so impressed with her grace. She had spoken with great poise and dignity in an embarrassing situation. The entire contest was at stake, but she had handled it as if nothing was lost. It made her natural beauty twice as appealing to me. I began a conversation with God. Might such a girl be his choice for me? Certainly, to follow his calling to Africa, I would need a wife and mother with her kind of character. Afterward, I was too shy to approach her. I asked others, Who is that girl from Marne who sang and played the mandolin? That is Annie Sulzle, I was told. I laughed her name from the moment I heard it. I forgot the names of others, but never that one. I prayed, Lord, how can I connect with that girl? I so much want to talk to her. I cannot say that I waited for an answer. In fact, I took matters into my own hands that night and did something totally manipulative. Perhaps later I suffered uncertainty because of it. I went to her pastor from Marne with a suggestion. I told him I was doing a practicum at my father's church in Krempe, and I offered to swap pulpits with him. He liked the idea, and that is how I got to Marne and finally met Annie. When I preached there, I was introduced to her, and we had a good conversation after the meeting. I learned that she had been born in Romania into a family of eight children. Her family had moved to Marne after suffering terribly during the war. They lived a farm life and always had plenty of food on the table. Friends and guests were made welcome. She had accepted Jesus as her savior in Sunday school. I told her that I would like to see her again. She said to me she might be able to come to visit me in Krempe on her way to the ACD Bible College. I was very pleased to learn that she was planning to attend the German Pentecostal school. When she came to visit, she told me she had been called to be a missionary. Do you mean God has called you to preach? 
Well, no. It is just that since becoming a Christian, I have always wanted to become a nurse so that I could serve the Lord on the mission field. I was relieved. I did not want to marry another preacher. What I sought was a wife, a helper, and a mother for my children. But of course, a mother with a missionary's heart would be essential to my calling. Africa lay ahead. I placed it before the Lord again, reminding him that the wrong wife could put all of it at risk. I asked him to make it clear to me if Annie was the one he would choose for me to marry. I'm not outlining a prescription to find a mate here. I'm simply relating my own story. I know of many others who have taken different paths just as successfully. Over the next year, Annie and I found it hard to be together. We wrote letters to one another. She was busy at school and I was working with father in Krempe or else traveling in various churches and crusades. It just didn't work out for us to spend much time together after our first meeting. This began to allow doubts to creep into my mind about our relationship. Meanwhile, my father campaigned against it. He said that Annie was no much for me. She was not well educated enough. In this, perhaps he thought too highly of the education I had received in Wales. But his objections did not really impact my thinking about her. I had to deal with my own doubts. Perhaps I had been presumptuous to act on my feelings in our first meeting, not waiting for a clear signal from God. I wrote to Annie and suggested that we put our relationship on ice for a time. She graciously understood and agreed. She was busy with school and with preparation for a life in missions work. After that, I began to look seriously for another candidate. As I traveled around in preaching engagements, there were lovely girls everywhere. But to connect meaningfully with just one proper candidate was not so easy. Along the way, I met another young preacher who told me about his beautiful sister. He said that his family lived in southern Germany and would welcome a visit from me if I would like to get to know her. The visit was arranged. His sister was indeed beautiful. We were all at dinner with the family at their house. I hoped that I was making a good impression. I thought she would make a price for any man. Suddenly she turned to me and said, I understand that you are the son of a poor preacher. It was as much the disapproving tone of her voice as the words themselves. Nothing more needed to be said. I thought she should marry one of my brothers. They are of the same mind. My attraction for this lovely girl vanished. My interest could not have been resurrected with a deep channel dredge. I would have departed immediately, except I had to stay and endure the rest of the plant visit. In the end, I said my polite thank you for the hospitality and said goodbye. I could not wait to return home and renew my correspondence with Annie. As I continued to pray about it, I felt the Lord saying to me, Annie is my choice for you. In February of 1964, I wrote a letter to break the ice I had placed between us. 
the ice didn't break. It melted in a heat wave. Our letters were filled with much more than casual affection. Suddenly, our romance was off to the races. I arranged to come see her at the Bible College. However, they had a rule that no boy could meet a girl on campus. We met outside the campus near a grove of trees. Taking a picnic lunch, we walked together. As we walked, I took her hand. So much is communicated in a touch. I began to know in my heart that Annie was the one for me. We were bonding and I could sense that my passion for her could be lifelong. I told her that I was almost finished with my practicum. The ACD president, Pastor Erwin Lorenz, was coming soon to conduct my ordination ceremony. Immediately afterward, I explained I would be required to serve as a pastor for two years in order to receive a missionary appointment. Furthermore, I told her that I would not serve as a pastor in Krempe nor in another church within the ACD. Rather, I would seek a new city that had no Pentecostal church and establish a congregation there for the required two years. She did not show a trace of fear or uncertainty about how this would be done. She had no question about the difficulties of such a pioneering effort. Her eyes that she loved the very idea. Yes, she was the adventurous girl who had chosen to play the mandolin and had the wisdom to stop and change the key. Annie Sulzle was someone special. I visited her again and again. In the meantime, I found an engagement ring and bought it. My did in March. In May, we walked beneath the blossoming apple and plum trees in my arms and kissed her for the very first time. I suppose the feeling was second only to the charge of the Holy Spirit that had searched through my hand in Father's prayer meeting as a boy. Annie, will you marry me? So radiant. I placed the ring on her finger and kissed her again. I could have swung through the trees or pounded my chest. My days of waiting and of Africa were over. The reality of following my calling with the love of mine was about to begin. Immediately, I felt the controlling bonds to Hermann. A new bond with my life partner took hold. Annie and I were together now, as of one before the Lord. I could hardly wait to marry her and make a place. Chapter 15 The married life was Flensburg. The name of the city came to me as a strong impression during Germany near the Danish border. It had the reputation of being the best city between Hamburg and Copenhagen. Situated at the end of a rocky fjord, community surrounded by dairies and rich farmland. I knew not one soul there which made the choice just about perfect. As usual, my father left father scratching his head. There are so many better choices, he said. It is freezing cold in Flensburg. You've given yourself a handicap by going to it where there is no Pentecostal church. Why? It is unnecessary. Father, I replied, I'm going to Flensburg. 
but you are going to be married in November. bride. We will live in a place God provides for us. But you don't encampe, and it still doesn't pay the bills. How will you make a living? Bread and water, Father. God has promised bread and water. We will not starve. My plan began to take shape. It was late summer, and I would for six weeks. Every night I would preach the ABC of the gospel. When of souls God had given me and find a permanent place of worship. In the process of seeing all this take place, Annie and I would be married. Father would eyes to start our life together, I thought. In Krempe, Glückstadt, Hamburg, Tostate, Rendsburg, and across the whole of Germany, young musicians to schedule special performances throughout the meetings, so that none were obligated beyond reason. I also had found a preaching companion, so I could remain fresh. Everything was set. When we had organized the crusade, Erich and I went to Flensburg with a tent. We obtained permit on a large field at the edge of town called the Exe. Everyone to advertise that we were set up at the Exe would be immediately understood by our advertising around town and waited for the first crowd. It was modest in size. I preached and one old gentleman came forward to accept Christ in his seventies. This truly inspired me. Night after night, the moment midway through the meetings, I was exhilarated. I had seen fifty. Already I had doubled the size of Father's church in Krempe. Then the a large circus came to town and pitched its big top right next to our tent. It towered above us, dwarfing us. We were being equipped up that massive canvas. I remembered the elephant, the lions, and the other wonderful animals from the circus of my childhood. But I also remembered Mother's description. The circus is an excuse for women to flaunt their bodies to arouse sin. I felt as if the enemy had thrown a wet blanket over my meetings in an air. One day, as I tidied up the interior of our crusade tent, I would like to speak with a man who is preaching in this tent. That is me, Monkey. I would like you to preach in my tent. I was stunned. Yes, I will advertise a special meeting to be held here on Sunday morning before the circus begins, then in a tent full of sinners. How could an evangelist refuse? Yes, I will be there, I said. I will be there. I shook a sand like a water pump. My vision of a sinful circus took on a new meaning. The circus had not come to take away from the harvest, but to add to it. I felt as if the Lord had broken a restraining thread around my ankle that once had been a heavy chain. On Sunday morning I arrived early and walked through the tent. High above me, The great tent poles held the canvas taut against the elements. Strong supporting ropes were rigged inside and out, making a comfortable space for the people to gather. Father, I prayed, someday I want a circus tent as big as this one 
for the preaching of the gospel. And I want to see it full of people who have come not to see a circus, but expecting to meet Jesus. A few workers were making last-minute adjustments to the trapeze gear and the main performance ring. I introduced myself. A clown in all his makeup brought his performance props into the main ring. Seeing me, he quickly took them to one side and sat on them to wait until I had finished delivering my sermon. People from Flensburg were already gathering, finding seats in the bleachers. When the time came for the sermon, I preached the ABC of the Gospel. I had an altar call, and a few people responded. As I prayed with them, I heard the sound of weeping. It was coming from behind me. Turning, I saw something I've never seen before or since. That circus clown had come all undone, trembling from head to toe, He came to where I stood and knelt in the center ring, his tears falling into the dust. I want to receive Jesus as my Savior, he said. I led him in the prayer for salvation. When the circus finished its run of performances, he left his old life behind, quit the circus and joined my congregation in Husum. Merely two weeks remained in the tent crusade. I went to my next point of business. Where would I find a building for the fifty converts? I took my Volkswagen for a drive into the heart of downtown. The city was charming and picturesque, perched at the end of a natural waterway. As I made my way along one of the main streets, a large shuttered building caught my eye. Looking closer, I noticed that all the shutters on the ground floor were closed tight, while all those on the second floor were opened. I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, The ground floor is your church building. I packed the car and climbed to the second floor. People were working in their group of offices. One of the door signs read, Hansen Rum. This company was quite famous in the region. It imported fermented sugar cane and molasses from a distillery on the island of Aruba. Here, at this factory, it was further distilled and blended for bottling and sale in Scandinavia and northern Germany. Many a sailor and many a farmer had ruined his soul with this infamous stuff. I almost turned around and left, feeling as if I had made a mistake. What good could come from this place? Lord, I asked, would you really use a rum company to provide my church building? In some corner of my head, I heard the words of Nathanael when he heard that the Messiah was supposedly from Nazareth. Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was a despised place, a ghetto in the biblical world. Once again, like a detective dusting a crime scene, before my very eyes, God's fingerprints began to emerge on the door with a Hansen rum sign on it. 
I was ever learning that he enjoys using unlikely sources. I knocked on the door. A man rose from his desk and approached me. Excuse me, I said. I'm wondering if the ground floor of this building can be rented. No, this building is scheduled to be demolished. We have built a new plant across town. So it is impossible, I thought. Nothing can be done with a building to be demolished. But again I was thinking too small. A new thought came into my head. In response I asked, When will the demolition begin? Oh, they say in two or three years. Another company plans to build a shopping market on this site. Immediately I saw the new possibility. Would you mind showing me the first floor? I have an idea about using it in the meantime. He gave me a tour. It had a large, empty main room. I could envision 75 people easily fitting into the space. I also saw two small ante-rooms along one wall. One was empty, the other contained a small worker's kitchen. What a bonus! Annie and I could use this for an apartment. Everything would work. They told me the agent in charge of this space was located in the nearby town of Kappeln. I drove there and met him. He was a cripple in a wheelchair. Soon I could see that the Holy Spirit had gone before me. I sensed that I had great favor with this man. I told him who I was and what I wanted to do with the first floor of the building. He seemed to emanate warmth towards every word I said. Do you know that the building is going to be demolished? he asked. Yes, but it can provide us with a good space in the meantime. We will look for a more permanent home when we are better established. I would like to rent it. I will rent it to you. I don't have much money. We are a new congregation and still small. How much would you need? Oh, about 1,200 Deutschmark per month. I cleared my throat and my eyes grew wide. You could see that I was out of my financial depth. The bottom dropped out of my enthusiasm. That was a price far too high for my little congregation to pay. What can you pay? He continued. 250, I said, somewhat sheepishly, realizing that we were worlds apart on price. It's yours, he said, smiling. He leaned forward in his wheelchair, his hand extended. I could not believe it. As we shook hands, something occurred to me. There is something else, I said. It is very cold here in winter, and I will need to heat the place. How much would that cost? Oh, don't worry about that. We have to heat the building anyway. I will just say that it's included in the rent. The provision had the mark of a loving Heavenly Father all over it. God wanted to provide our church building through the generosity of a rum company. Why not? He had supplied converts through a summer circus, both unlikely sources. In this series of events, I began to see 
how I might miss God's provision if I limited him to my preconceived standards. My walk with him was becoming more and more of an adventure of faith. I should not predict where it would lead. Before leaving town, I found a chair supply store and priced 75 chairs for our gatherings. I believed that we would need chairs enough to grow beyond our present numbers. I returned to the tent that night to make the announcement that we had a church home in the Hansen Rum building. More than that, I shared the incredibly reduced rent as a sign of God's favor. I was so excited. The people shared my enthusiasm. Now we will seek God to supply the chairs we will need for seating. That night, the old German gentleman, who had been my first convert, asked me to come and visit him on a dairy farm in the neighboring village of Handewitt. The following day I drove across the farmland in my Volkswagen, recalling the tears in the man's eyes as he had raised his hand and come forward in our little tent meeting. In the barn I found him sitting on a milking stool. That was his job. He was a milker, not the owner of the dairy, merely the hired hand. I sat on a stool opposite him. He showed me the technique for milking a cow and, of course, amused himself by insisting that I give it a try. That cow thought about as much of my attempt to milk her as the master of the carpentry school in Kemper had thought of my efforts to be a carpenter. She wanted to kick me right out of the barn. There's a reason why I'm a preacher and you are a milker, I said, releasing the other. He laughed. After pleasant words, I asked him why he had asked me to come and see him. He said he wanted to make a donation for the chairs. He reached inside his shirt and pulled out a folded piece of newspaper, handing it to me. I thanked him and looked inside. His gift was enough to buy all of the chairs. He was such an unlikely candidate to make this donation, simply a hired farmhand, just the kind of person that I would overlook in the natural, and just the kind of person God delights in using for his glory. That night I stood before the tent crowd. Praise the Lord, people! We've been delivered, I shouted. We've received a donation, and I've purchased all the chairs for the new sanctuary. My faith was rising like a tide to believe God for even greater things. Do you, Reinhard Bonke, take Annie Sulzle to be your lawful wedded wife, to live in the holy estate of matrimony? Will you love, honor, comfort and cherish her from the day forward, forsaking all others, keeping only unto her for as long as you both shall live? My father's voice filled the first story of the Hansen Ram building with the words I had been waiting five months to hear. My first fifty converts filled the share of the chairs we had recently bought. Another fifty members from both sides of our family and dozens of well-wishers sat in rented chairs that crowded the extremities of the room. I do, I said, looking at Annie's smiling face. 
She never looked more beautiful to me than on that day, dressed in white, her oval face framed in lovely flowers. In my imagination I could hear the most delicate tones of a mandolin playing. Whatever the tune, it was from heaven, and it was our song. In our invitations to the wedding guests, Annie and I had stated our goal to go to Africa after two years of service in Flensburg. We asked them to give us only gifts that we could carry with us. We suggested that they make gifts of money to a missions fund that would help us on our way. After bringing the traditional wedding ceremony to its final moment, my father delivered a short homily to the gathered guests. Had I been preaching, of course, it would have been the ABC of the gospel. But Dad was a pastor, not an evangelist. He opened his Bible and read a scripture that he knew would have great significance for our marriage. He also wanted the audience to appreciate it. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Hermann Bonke had not agreed with me on many things through the years. He had not agreed on my calling to Africa, nor on my timing, nor on my choice to marry Annie. On this day he had changed his mind. He was more than agreeing with me. He was as much as admitting that his judgment of my choice of Annie and of many other of his opinions had been wrong. And it was not just that we had a difference of opinion, nor was it that I simply had a mind of my own. In his sermon text taken from John chapter 2 verse 5, he explained that I had heard from God, and this had made all the difference. Father, in his wedding sermon, wanted to bow to that higher voice in my life. Whatsoever he says unto you, do it. This was a most priceless gift from him to Annie and me. When God speaks, he said, nothing else matters. As I thought about it, the scripture had even more layers of meaning for both Annie and I, especially on this, our wedding day. The words of Scripture Father had chosen were the words spoken by Mary, the mother of Jesus, at the famous wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. It seems that the host of wedding had run out of wine. The crisis was potentially embarrassing and would have tainted the celebration for the bride and groom. Grabbing her son by the sleeve and advising him of the shortage, Mary had turned to the servants of the host standing by, saying, Whatsoever he says unto you, do it. That was the context for my father's text. As father enlarged on this topic, I glanced around the room, smiling. Water into wine, I thought, and a rum factory into a place of worship. God, you are so gracious. You may now kiss your bride, father said. My thoughts returned to the present. I needed no further encouragement. It was a kiss like the finest wine from the Savior's water pots. We broke the bread of communion together and then dismissed our guests. Our honeymoon began in that small anteroom in Flensburg. I had purchased a used hide-bed. During the day it would double as a sofa, 
and at night we would make it down into our bed. Quite the efficient solution, I thought. We retired to our two-room living quarters and had everything we needed. We had the lord of the wedding feast, and we had each other. In spite of my father's failure to teach me the way of a man with a woman at the age of fourteen, we needed no insight. of our kiss guided us through the night and ignited our relationship across the years. will continue as long as we both shall live.